I remember Declan Kidney shouting in messages saying, Wally's to go number eight, I'm both seven and Dunica six. I just kind of stayed at number eight and ignored it. <laughs> the Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neve Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. OTB AM. With Gillette, put your best face forward with our new and improved razors. Uh, it's Tuesday, you're welcome along to OTB AM. It's Sharon Owen with you all the way through until 10. You can get us at Off the Ball AM on Twitter. You can use the hashtag OTB AM. You can leave a comment on the YouTube stream or you can slide into our DMs, however you want to get in touch with us. Also with us this morning, none other than Nathan Murphy. Good morning, gentlemen. How are we all? I'm all right. I'm all right. Life is good. Right. Uh, well, yeah, bringing the bringing the, the big energy there. I'm all right. This, that's not how we do things, Nathan. We're, we're, we're it more... really is how we do things, to be quite honest. No, we're, we're more. <laughs> Nathan has nailed the tone. Nailed the top of the, the top I've of the show tone. Never been more excited. Well, that's good. What has you particularly excited? What has me particularly excited? That's a that's a a, a very good question. Well, football is back. Football is back. I had a. Uh, I had a tough week of it, Jer, with the old COVID, and it couldn't have come at a worse time when I found the only week of the year to have no football except the African Cup of Nations, which I think we'll all agree will go down as one of the worst tournaments in the history of football in terms of entertainment. Uh, so seven days, no football. So when the weekend came and suddenly there was an opportunity to sit down on the couch at midday on Saturday and not get off until midnight on Sunday, God, it was glorious. And now Tuesday night, three games, Premier League. Oh, I need my fix. Funny how we all forgot about the Friday night football where the United Middlesbrough game seems to get very quickly forgotten about and yet surely that should have precipitated talk of a full-blown crisis particularly given what the way that they went out and and then last night like it seems like we're just coasting into almost ignoring what's going on on the field at Manchester United at the moment. It feels like there's absolutely zero expectation now of Ralph Rangnick. He still it feels is going to get that two-year consultant contract but nobody nobody thinks he's going to be the next manager and it feels as though nobody believes that he is going to oversee a change in the culture of Manchester United in bring them into a modern style of football it hasn't happened last night again while I thought in the first half they were actually quite good and were waving a bit of momentum and had Paul Pogba at the centre of things and striding around the place and controlling the game in the second half it was like watching an Ole Gunnar Solskjaer side. There's still no real high press. There's no high intensity. Do they play five yards further up the pitch? If they do, it doesn't suit Harry Maguire to play five yards further up the pitch. Yeah, they're cruising along, hoping that somehow they're the best of a bad bunch and finish inside the top four. Mm, That might be the case. I just want to apologise to everybody. I got the day wrong. That might have uh, set things off badly at the top of the show. Look at you, little smoke face. What's that for? Did you you even notice? No, of course not. Good. (laughs) 7.33 7.33 this morning on Wednesday, the uh, the 9th of February. Good morning to everybody. It's, uh, well, I guess it is good news that it's not Tuesday. It definitely that, that, is. that is certainly a, a piece of, uh, that's a good development. Yeah, well, if you're, if you're sitting at home, you're like, oh God, did I lose a day? Did I? Did I thought it was Wednesday. I apologise to you about that this morning here on OTBAM. Uh, are we talking about the other game in the football? I, I think that there's a... There's a world in which Manchester United are facing down the barrel of another decade of what they've just been through over the last decade, where it always felt like they were on the verge of hiring the right manager or spending the right money or getting back up to the level where they were automatic title contenders. But there's a possibility that that might not be the case. And one of the reasons that might not be the case is because the richest club in the world have finally begun to get their act together. Yeah. 
Yeah, like I mean, it, it's we, we kind of made this point earlier on in the week, didn't we? That is Brendan Rodgers going to be regretting not taking the Newcastle job? I'm not sure what you think, Nathan. Is is there a world in which in a in a year's time Leicester City are in a worse place than Newcastle United? Uh, quite possibly, but do you want the job to be the guy who has to keep them up when there's no real guarantees? Mm. So last night was a positive. They get the victory. Karen Trippier scores this sensational free kick. Trippier picks up a bit of an injury towards the end, and you're going, uh-oh. All that momentum could go quite quickly if a couple of these players don't get enough game time. You want to be the next guy, surely. What are the expectations of Eddie Howe going to be for next season? So if they go and they spend 150, 200 million, are Newcastle, are the owners thinking, you know what, we're happy to, with slow progress, we're happy to be top eight, which again for Newcastle would be an incredible season. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're thinking we want to be in Champions League next season. And if Eddie Howe ain't giving them that, you go after somebody who can contest for the top four and maybe that man then is Brendan Rodgers. I think Rodgers is having a bad season. No way. having a bad season. No, he's not getting that job. It's gone. It's gone. He had one chance at it and I don't like, here's the thing. He hasn't. Brendan Rodgers has shown he can bounce back. He can bounce back with his reputation and you cannot write him off on the back of three, four months at a time when Leicester have had all sorts of injury issues missing pretty much their entire back four Ah, at different times. Crimey River. Jamie Var... All the money in the world you've got. You've invested loads of money. Impact. Okay, so you this have injuries. Now every team impact. has injuries in the Premier League. I'm, I, he has not. He has not managed well since the pressure has come on. Since he's been linked with the Man United gig, it, it doesn't look good. If you're the owner or chairman of a club, you're like, oh, as soon as as soon as he got his head turned, the results fell apart. Which means that the 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 um, team believed that he was going to go on. And, and leave I think or he had just massively overachieved over the last two seasons by getting them to the brink of the top four making young players better every season those young players probably needed to leave to kick on to the next stage of their career it looks as though the likes of James Madison Harvey Barnes maybe feel they've outgrown the club that they're, they're just not getting the satisfaction there they're not in the England squad they're wondering what the hell is going on but I think the injuries have made a massive part they have some of the best young defenders in Europe. Eddie Howe is going to keep the James team up. James Justin, gone pretty much all season. Eddie Howe is going to keep the team up and then he's going to be given the summer and he's going to buy really good players and they'll start the season well next year and that job is gone for him. That, Brendan Rodgers is not getting that gig again. The Newcastle job is not going to be gone for more than 18 months at any stage. There's going to be a constant rotation until eventually, if, and I still think it's a massive if, they go and win a Premier League title in any time in the next 10 or 15 years. They have an absolute mountain to climb. Brendan Rodgers has, is a far better manager than Eddie Howe, has a far greater track record than Eddie Howe. And he I mean, may not have been, and I'm sure did not fancy the challenge of going into Newcastle to save them from relegation at the time. And he didn't know what players they were going to get. Like Newcastle, a week before the end of the transfer window, didn't know what players they were going to have. It worked out, it seems, all right in the end for them. But they, you want to be the guy... I think they've turned the corner... Getting, the exciting, the talented players. You want to be the ones. They're going to get those this summer. Million. That's exactly what's going to happen this but summer. He's, he's keeping them. them up. They'll get some of them, but I with every get passing summer and every step up, you're not like Newcastle aren't going to get anybody who wants to play. Obviously, anybody who wants to play Champions League football, anybody from the elite this summer. Maybe the summer after they can. Maybe the summer after that. Brendan Rodgers is still a young man. Five hundred no grand a week gets you a lot of players. Not to Newcastle. Oh eight seven oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number. You can uh, get in touch with us this morning about that if you want. Um, we'll talk about Man United with Daniel Harris in a few minutes. Is there more about that game? Yeah, just put together some match notes on it last night. Decided, you know, I'm going to watch Everton versus Newcastle. Uh, going to keep a list, a chronological list of my internal monologue last night. So for anybody who didn't watch it, here is uh, the match notes from last night. So 
pre-match no cheeky smile from Frank Lampard no quick transition to no but seriously in his interview has Lampard changed has his mood darkened is this going to be a grim evening five minutes into the game Everton have handed possession back to Newcastle three times already. Six minutes. Seamus Coleman with a header back to Pickford. A header that could only be performed by the greatest right back in history. Eight minutes. Chesney Brown from Coronation Street has had a child and his name is Anthony Gordon. Nine minutes. Coleman with a cross to the head of Townsend who makes a mess of the header. Best cross ever in Premier League history though. Ten minutes. Eddie Howe taken out by Seamus Coleman. What an honour for the Newcastle manager to feel the touch of the greatest fullback in the history of football. Eleven minutes. Lampard is playing three at the back it seems. He taught those Chelsea players everything they know in that system. 12 minutes. Has Richarlison got Jolinton's hairstyle? Or has Jolinton got Richarlison's hairstyle? 13 minutes. Callum Wilson is holding court in the crowd. Chris Sutton nails his co-commentary responsibility by delivering the utterly essential line they could do with him. A little too early in the game for him to say. Penny for his thoughts. So well played, Chris Sutton. Tidy work. 17 minutes. Coleman nicks the ball off Alan St. Maximan. ASM thinks he's been fouled, but actually he's just been given a lesson by the Premier League's greatest ever footballer. 21 minutes. Hold on, does Deli Alley also have the Richarlison slash Jolinson hairstyle now too? 24 minutes. No, Deli Alley has a ginger top. He's coming on. 29 minutes. Coleman cross, too high for Richarlison, but clearly Richarlison's fault for not being tall enough. The greatest player in the Premier League always crosses perfectly. 32 minutes, Yerry Mina is now injured. Newcastle play on despite him being down and Joe Linton misses the chance. Disgraceful lack of sportsmanship. This has really changed my opinion of Newcastle United Football Club and everything they stand for. 33 minutes, Shelby goes in with a heavy challenge on Gordon and he gets booked. Shelby appears to have forgotten it was Everton who were meant to be angry after the previous moment of play. 34 minutes, Garrett Southgate is here sitting beside Amanda Staveley and her husband. I'm greatly looking forward to seeing John Joe Shelby run the midfield for England and Qatar this year. 36 minutes, goal for Everton after the Jamal Lascelles gets in the way of a Matt Target goal line clearance. 37 minutes, he wouldn't like Jamal Lascelles when he's angry. He's decided it's time for Everton to feel the embarrassment of scoring an own goal. 43 minutes, Jordan Pickford kicks the ball straight out of play. Jordan Pickford is now shouting at his teammates once again after shouting at his teammates for conceding an own goal a few minutes previously. 45 minutes plus three for injury time. Proper League One stuff here. This is what we live for. Goal mat scramble because Joe Linton slips as he's about to strike for goal in acres of space in the box. He gets his body into such a weird position where he manages to kick the ball off his own head. 52 minutes. Oh my word, Seamus Coleman has just played a beautiful ball from his own half right into the chest of Deli Alley. But unfortunately, the ball has been played right into the chest of Deli Alley and he can't control and the chance is gone. This is not going well for him. 55 minutes. Donny van de Beek is in his familiar place, warming up. You can see it in his eyes that he is hoping beyond hope that the manager does look over to him and he hears for the first time ever, get in there, Donny. 56 minutes. Goal for Bournemouth. Ryan Fraser. Deli Alley gives the ball away and proceeds to not track back very well. Chris Sutton does not approve. This is not going well. 59 minutes, oh my god, oh my god, it's happening, it's happening. Donny van de Beek is about to play half an hour of a Premier League football match. Praise the Lords for Andre Gomez's yellow card. He's been hooked by Frank. Donny has arrived. 50, or 62 minutes. Question. It would be objectively funny if Frank Lampard got relegated. But why? What has he done to us? 63 minutes. Chris woulda, coulda, shoulda with another opportunity to score his first Premier League goal since November, but he doesn't manage to get on the end of an Alan St. Maximum ball. 65 minutes. Jordan Pickford tries to clear the ball for a throw-in, but it goes straight up in the air. Sarcastic cheers from the home crowd. Brantwaite then tries to clean it up, but he swings at fresh air and the ball whacks off his standing foot and out it goes for a corner. The sarcastic cheers are now bellows. Pickford isn't even angry this time. He's just disappointed. 69 minutes. Andros Townsend touches the ball in an astonishing development. 72 minutes. Seamus Coleman swings a boot and misses the ball, slicing it but to a teammate. Even when he's mortal, he's still a god of this game. 78 minutes, the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund should write Alan St. Maxman a, black, a blank check. 
80 minutes. Boom, Kieran Trippier back of the net. Jordan Pickford here has left a gap in the wall to invite one specific shot from Trippier, but he unfortunately can't save that one specific shot from Kieran Trippier. Stavely and co are high-fiving in the expensive seats. You've got to feel thrilled for them. Gareth Southgate is third-wheeling big time now, though. 84 minutes, Ali slips, tries to slip Richardson through, but he's got his back turned and the ball trickles out over the end line. This is not going well. 87 minutes, Ali goes down too easily in the box as he shoved off the ball and gives up appealing for a penalty after three milliseconds. This is not going well. 90 minutes, debut for Bruno Guimarães. The phones are out in the stands. £40 million of good, clean, honest money made flesh. 93 minutes, Bruno performs a back heel. Transfer fee paid back immediately. 94 minutes, Ali nails Joe Linton. That's for the hair. This is not going well. Full time, the director's box goes crazy. Southgate still not included in any of the hugging. If you want to get in touch with us this morning, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Or, of course, you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream, hashtag OTBAM. Uh, here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock. We're going to speak with Daniel Harris at 10 past 8. We've got the sports pages at half 8. Daniel Kinahan featuring, featuring prominently on the front pages. Uh, the uh, sports news, John Duggan. And then we'll bring you Keith Wood's thoughts about Ireland-France at the weekend. And then, obviously, a big launch yesterday from the LGFA ahead of the new league season. And we'll also play some of uh, Dan McDonald on uh, the FAI launch yesterday. Before we get to that with Nathan, we've got a special competition for you this morning. Aer Lingus is the official airline sponsor of the Irish Rugby team, bringing home advantage to wherever the team plays. And to celebrate, we have a legitimately amazing prize. A pair of match tickets, flights and two nights accommodation. To be won for this weekend's Six Nations Clash between France and Ireland as well as a signed jersey Daily Winners get a, uh, an Ireland jersey to win the chance of winning and uh, all you got to do is tell us our mystery voice they, at least they download the first episode uh, that's one former Ireland star considering launching his own podcast they, at least they download the first episode Tantra you can WhatsApp the answer to 0879180180 tweet us at off the ball or comment on the YouTube channel that was a little sideways glance from you there I don't know who it is so uh, I, I, I think the, the context of the, I, I, I presume I know who it is but. each daily winner will get an Ireland jersey and we'll go into the draw everybody goes into the draw on uh, Thursday for it's the grand one. prize uh, here's what Frank Lampard had to say to BT Sport after last night's defeat were they lacking in aggression for you? You know, are they, are they lacking in a bit of confidence as well? Do you think? Yeah, the, the confidence one smacks you in the face because I come into the club and they want to run a results that's that's left them in the position where we're in. So um, it's my job to to change that. But there isn't a, a magic wand on that front because this is the Premier League. So the only thing to do is to work and to focus, to look back at the game and just look and look forward about what we can do in the next games coming up. I mean, it's uh, if anyone thought this was going to be easy because we beat Brentford in the cup, it, it was never going to be that. So. It, it puts our it puts a real sharp focus on it for us, and I've got a real belief in the squad. But we must build that confidence, and we must. Where we saw confidence go through the roof on Saturday in not, not much time, we saw it go down the opposite way, and that's work for us to do. Uh, good chance that they're getting sucked into that relegation battle and not getting out of it. I think they'll be in that relegation battle, but I think they'll survive. There's. They're too good to go down, Jer. Too are, good to go down. Are they? I think there is. I are think we sure about that? Quality again. Calvert Loon was on the bench last night. If they can, if, if they can't keep him fit, Calvert Loon ends up not playing between now and the end of the season. They got themselves a big problem well, because the goals ain't coming from what's anywhere. What's more else. likely to happen? The, the player has been injured all season, miraculously having a great two-month window to keep his team in the Premier League, or the injuries to linger on into the summer and him to get a move in the summer. That happens. Well, well, that is the key: getting him back fit. I still think Everton are far stronger than Norwich, Watford, Burnley. Now, Burnley, we've the one who you know of the track record, have been able to get it done and grinding out the odd point here. I think it's 11 draws for Burnley. 
still just the one win uh, for Burnley all season. But the two signings were very strange signings. Like Deli Ali, we know, is brilliant talent, two-time young footballer of the year. But even at his absolute peak at Tottenham, he was never a player who controlled a game. He was never a player who took a game by the scruff of the neck. He was a player who you sort of forget was there for 10, 12 minutes and then would pop up with a moment of genius would pop up with a brilliant decisive pass or make that run in behind the defence and get a goal. But he wasn't somebody, he never became what people thought he might when he was 18, 19, like the number eight who could be the box-to-box, who could dominate a midfield in the way a, a Frank Lampard did at times, that could be involved in everything. That's never been Deli Alley's game. So you wonder where that fits into a side who are really struggling and under enormous pressure at a stadium that is on your back and will be on, I think Frank Lampard will have a, good honeymoon period because I think the fans will be on the players back pretty quickly around this and Donny van de Beek we don't know what sort of player Donny van de Beek is anymore he can't be a player full of confidence so it doesn't feel like you're bringing in any steeliness at all to that Everton side on touch on the last year Mina to injury quite early last night they have a lot of problems at the moment Everton I still think they'll just about have enough but already you're looking at Newcastle and thinking Newcastle are going past Everton quite quickly so suddenly you're the next one to the bottom three. I would be shocked if they were relegated. But would you legitimately be shocked, or like would, at the I end would. be like, I'm not really that surprised, given the absolute like chaos that reigns behind the scenes, the stories we hear of uh, of the salaries, the 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 stuff that the club has been through, the complete lack of any overarching plan, the entire backroom crew moved out a new one has to come in mid-season you wouldn't you, you can't at the end of the season when you read the 8,000 words athletic piece you'd be like oh that all makes sense now it does but a lot of those clubs down the bottom it always makes sense because they are such a mess and I think quite a few of those teams down there are in a similar situation like all isn't exactly rosy at Burnley right now we know what Watford are like so I think Everton if they can get through this and regroup during the summer then they can kick on from there. But you know, Richarlison, who you know I've touched on many times, a player I really like, looks totally disinterested at the moment. Looks like he'd rather be anywhere else. A relegation scrap. He is not returning your love. February. That is for it's sure. Not, 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 not. <laughs> the, the pressure was just too much for him. The pressure Absolutely. was just I mean, too much for him. The constant love bombing of Richarlison by you over the last two and a half seasons has just got too much for him. It's like he's yeah, just a bit creeped out wilting. by it now. You're, you're, yeah, there is that. I don't want to be in the public sphere where this guy can get near me. The, because the relegation battle a couple of weeks ago, the last time we had Premier League fixtures, looked really exciting. But from what you're saying there... If we accept that Newcastle have turned a corner and Everton are too good to go down, then the bottom three are going to stay the bottom three. I think the bottom three will stay the bottom three. The only thing you could throw into the mix is like Burnley, Burnley will have a bounce. They will have to have a bounce at some stage and make a run of it. And you're looking at somebody like Brentford who've lost their last four games in a row. Their star man, even Tony's over on holidays and he said, F the club. Uh, like, does that have an effect? Like maybe Burnley's start to the season where they catch people surprise is running out already and a four game losing streak suddenly becomes one win in 10 or 11 and then they're right back in that mix again uh, I think Leeds will have enough to keep out of it I think Palliser you know been really impressive so it, it, I think it's three out of Norwich Watford Burnley Brentford I, I don't see Everton I just don't see Everton in that mix Alright we're sticking with the, the Premier League West Ham also big winners last night they beat Watford by a goal to nil that means they go above Manchester United in the race for fourth obviously the real story was David Moyes deciding that Kurt Zuma who was videoed kicking a cat uh, in the previous 24 hours was too good to drop have a listen here he is addressing the Zuma situation the audio is not great but we figured that we'd play it for you have a listen 
as I said, really, really disappointed because I'm a, I'm a big animal lover and, uh, and I'm someone who cares a lot about my, uh, my dogs and my horses and all those people who, who I'm connected with. Will you speak with him or will you leave this as a separate matter for the club? Is that how you're approaching this? Yes, the club are dealing with it, as you well know. Uh, I've already spoken to him, and uh, we will we'll move on as much as we can. We wanted to try and get get this game out of the way, and we understand that uh, you know it's not something which everybody's uh, pleased about. In fact, nobody will be pleased about it. It's a, it's a really poor situation. Uh. He was too. He was too good to drop. Did you think about dropping and leaving? Him? No, he's one of my best players. So, because I don't really care what happens, it's irrelevant to me what this man's character is. It's irrelevant to me the fact that he's been pictured kicking an animal. Because I'm I'm an animal lover, so therefore it's okay. I love my horses. I've got horses, by the way. You know, uh, subtle flex. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm sorry, but uh, don't f with cats. And the backlash here is going to be long and continuous I think because there's like if you think about what uh, what Kurt Zuma did and if you think about the, the photograph that went around um, of Gordon Elliott sitting on a dead horse like the horse died of natural causes this guy is actually pictured kicking a cat and like throwing it uh, slapping it and throwing a shoe at it I mean I, I don't know I think that uh, uh, He's he's thrown petrol all over this situation. Like there's, it's clearly an incredibly serious issue from a PR point of view, which is how clubs would generally approach this. You leave him out, you hope it dies down. You give him a heavy fine. The player comes out and repents. You don't say, well, what happens over there is nothing to do with the football side of things. Now we would never look to West Ham as a club for, I think, moral leadership on anything. But David Moyes always felt separate and was trying to change what West Ham were about and give them a bit of integrity on and off the pitch and he has let himself down badly here you cannot cannot play Kurt Zuma after that video emerged of kicking a cat in front of his kids chasing it around the house to punch it like absolute insanity and his comments only made it worse like to say where where does that end it's not a football matter we know that what happens off the pitch has to have an influence you have to want a certain type of character in your dressing room. And it seemed quite noticeable at the game last night that it wasn't just the Watford fans who were booing Kurt Zuma. It seemed as though it was the West Ham fans as well who were looking at this going, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, this guy is not somebody we want, not someone we want associated with our club. And from a position where you could probably get away with just leaving him out for the one game and moving on with the way the football world works, it feels now that this is going to become a huge issue for West Ham as to how they deal with Zuma. Like, I mean, West Ham talking about it before the game, they said that they're dealing with it internally. I mean, if they have dealt with it internally or were trying to deal with it internally, you would see the external impact of it, which is the man not starting in the team. So it feels that West Ham have almost fobbed this issue off on David Moyes, and David Moyes is also 
kind of trying to disassociate himself from the issue as well and I guess it hasn't been dealt with as we've seen so far I see some West Ham fans on social media some dyndable West Ham fans are saying that actually they were saying zoo rather than booing uh, Kurt Zuma last night a bit of a boo earns moment there I suspect and also of course uh, the Watford fans uh, as soon as Kurt Zuma hit the deck about half an hour into into proceedings after receiving a kick they started chanting that's how your cat feels which uh, you have to give uh, Watford fans a uh, bit, of, bit of credit for that one not a chant that we've heard too much in the past so he didn't get a good reception last night but he shouldn't have been playing Alison Rudd says it all became a tireless pantomime though that stuff from the crowd and it's the type of thing that like goes away after a week or two is what West Ham hope clearly uh, I would have thought that if you bring such shame on your club as in any business but even more so maybe in football that you're taken out that you are receiving a hefty fine whatever the maximum the PFA will allow uh, you don't get to play for a couple of matches there's a certain degree of public shaming that you have to go through then as the player and rightly so but to sort of brush it under the carpet and say well listen you know, what he does at home uh, has nothing to do with this club as long as he turns up trains well and is one of our best 11 footballers I'm going to pick him no matter what like what what sort of culture does that set in that West Ham dressing room well and in football generally and I think that um, you make the point we shouldn't really be looking to football for moral guidance and yet so many people love football and they love the power that that and other sports have to bring people together and then this stuff just makes you you're just reminded that none of this really matters again it's just a bunch it's of mi- moral guidance here it's is just it? a bunch it of millionaires having guidance. fun and that's all uh, all that matters is that they're all going to get their win bonuses last night you know is there is there a uh, cohort of people in that dressing room who were turning on Zuma last night after the game going, you know, that was bad. Or they're like, yeah, good man, you, you did well there, you dealt with the pressure well. Screw them. Like, that's, I, I, I'd say it's more the, the latter than the former. To go batting down the hatches immediately, go straight into to, to that sort of point of view, I guess. Like, it, it, does, it does definitely feel that West Ham are going to play this by saying nothing over the next little while that they said their statement and uh, I think even David Moyes is kind of looking across to his the, the, the PR um, person or the media officer at the top table last night there was there a way in which they're going to try and, and, and kill this over the next little while without any real consequences for Zuma um, I mean and even when he talked there about everybody in the dressing room being happy to get their win bonuses and all that like even if Kurt Zuma was just denied his win bonus or whatever the, the, the money is he'll still make a pretty penny next week and there wouldn't necessarily be any consequence no, exactly. There is no consequences. It turns out there are, there have been no no significant consequences, not for West Ham for playing him, not for Zuma for what he did, not for football generally. The the circus rolls on and everybody forgets about it in a little while. Like it will be in six months' time. What was the Zuma story again? Because I, and that and we're all guilty of it. I think in some ways we're all complicit. Uh, right, so that's the story with um, West Ham. They're up to fourth, which is the most important thing. You know, they're they're back in the hunt for Champions League. There was a bit of a wobble. They've come out of the wobble the other side. Don't know how good they were against Watford, but um, uh, let's move on because the FAI gave a 90-minute press conference yesterday to reflect on a whirlwind 24 hours for them where the Euros bid was confirmed. How that's going to work in, in some ways was fleshed out. Uh, with the uh, the other FAs uh, and their chief executives all out yesterday speaking about that, and then uh, or I said the day before, and then obviously the the FAS strategy. Uh, Nathan, could you maybe talk to us a little bit about the breakdown in terms of how much focus there was on the the draw, uh, the bid, and how much there was on the strategy document in the in the press conference? Uh, well, I wasn't in the press conference because it was only for the uh, newspaper journalists. So I had sort of 15 minutes myself with Jonathan Hill and Roy Barrett um, 
it was a sort of day where you would like 90 minutes because it was the first time Jonathan Hill had actually sat down in person with the media. And as you say, Monday alone was a pretty seismic day where you could have spent an hour just talking about the bid, the ramifications, the cost, and leading into the strategy document, which could be one of the most important in the history of Irish football, if it can be implemented quite quickly over the next three or four years. That's before you get into all the other stuff that's always happening around schoolboy football at the moment, around Stephen Kenny's contract, around Anthony Barry, all of that. Uh, so this was a, a, a rare opportunity, actually, to spend some time and with Jonathan Hill, see how he works, and very much backed up by Roy Barrett, which I thought was very noticeable yesterday. Roy Barrett was sitting alongside Roy Barrett, the chairman of the FAI, uh, and any questions that were there around Jonathan Hill and the job he's done so far, uh, Roy Barrett was there to give him his absolute full backing that the FAI board are more than satisfied with what Jonathan Hill is doing at the moment. So my conversation probably ended up not spending as much time as would have wanted on the strategy because I don't think you can really get into it in 12, 15 minutes. It was... On the bid, firstly, uh, on the cost of the bid, which they are non-committal on, um, Jonathan Hill said that there's going to be three people working on it, and that's almost the cost of this, um, that it is very reasonable. Uh, that's not going to have a massive impact on FAI budgets on, say, implementing the strategy plan. It's not going to be millions upon millions of euro that a lot of the work was done for the Euro 2020 bid and a lot of work uh, been done around the World Cup bid. So a good chunk of this is already done, uh, but still couldn't give an exact figure, which I think everyone wants at the moment because it does feel as though you know, every penny is important at the FAI when you are over £50 million in debt. Uh, on the strategy document, like it's clear for the strategy document, like two things are crucial. Firstly, you need money. It seems they are going to be and having to go back to government for a lot of this, and maybe they're going to get better at utilising the various funds that are available to sporting organisations around different grants, uh, particularly around FAI, around League of Ireland and stadiums. There's an audit due to take place. Uh, a good chunk of my conversation was around his working arrangements in the end because there was a story in the paper that he's not living in Ireland. Uh, he's been working remotely. Um, Jonathan Hill said he's in Dublin five days a week. So he's going back home at the weekends. His situation with his family is that his children are at a stage of school where they're not in a position to move over right now. said he's in Dublin five days a week. He's in Abbottstown five days a week. And, and actually, there's nobody else in Abbottstown because everybody and the vast majority of the FAI employees are still working from home so he doesn't see it as a big issue and to be honest i'm not quite sure how big an issue it is uh, away from the optics of it like party feels that like the fai is such a disparate and difficult uh irish football is so difficult to grasp in terms of the grassroots level and the breakdown between league of ireland and schoolboys like do you need to be on the ground meeting these people week in week out then you think john delaney did that John Delaney spent every night of the week out meeting the well, people. I, I think that we need to get away from the... It's hard to. You, it's hard to. But you can't, you can't say that, like, uh, everything, every the fact that John Delaney met people, like, that was about shoring up a power base. That was about mm. making sure that votes would go one direction. That was, like, old-school Irish... Uh, like, how he went around the country with the chicken and chips circuit and it was like I'm going to meet everybody and then all of a sudden there's this groundswell of support for him so like there's a that's what that was about from Delaney's perspective if Jonathan Hill was to go on a listening tour to speak to the football people of Ireland I don't think anybody would say ah ah that's Delaney-esque like there's you know, we need we Roy Barrett makes the point we need to forget the past like in some in some aspects you absolutely need to learn from the mistakes of the past but you do also need to do a little bit of a men in black and go right we're starting again 
and we will actually it's okay for me to be out listening to and at matches and seeing the crappy facilities like getting a getting a, a feel for what it's like to to watch the kids changing containers i made this point like you know the the gleaming facilities in the GAA clubs and the kids changing in containers is something that you would hope the 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 body politic of the FAI fully understands and like Damien Duff talked about it when he talked about the dinosaurs and how uh, he was making that comment because look at the facilities and it's something that we need to learn from you'd hope that Jonathan Hill understands that but I don't know because as you say we haven't had that much access to him and, and those opportunities and look, to look, COVID has had, a, has had a huge impact on that. And even with him getting out and about and meeting the people, and I think it is important that he meets the people because you would think as he goes around the country, he'll figure out actually and meet half a dozen, a dozen figures who he'll be impressed by and think actually these are people I want to bring in and to have an influence as well. Whereas if you're not, you're relying on those around you who probably have a preconceived notion and they're telling you who you should talk to rather than actually just going and naturally meeting all the people involved in yeah. football. Yeah. I would expect that uh, I'd expect he'll be at lots of League of Ireland games off the back of this uh, and we'll be getting a good sense of the issues around facilities. And it is one of the standout bits of the strategy document, I think, is this audit that's going to take place. Like they've given themselves a very short time frame, which is great in one way because it means you know we'll have answers by 2025 as to what's actually happened. But also like the change that needs to take place in the League of Ireland. And the more you think about it, the the weight of expectation that's been put on League of Ireland clubs is absolutely massive around the future of Irish football. So firstly, we're looking at facilities and then we're looking at academies that League of Ireland clubs are going to be responsible. And most League of Ireland clubs have one, two full-time staff. Like Facilities, grants, all of that is time-consuming, energy-sapping. And League of Ireland clubs don't have huge staff to do that. And at the same time, we're saying, transform your grounds, make them better, but also build an academy from scratch where a lot of these clubs have no, no reputation in doing it, have no great knowledge in doing it. Okay. Are we, I think they, they, the FAI will, as part of this, have to give them the resources somehow well, to you, make all of that more straightforward. Yeah, you could centralise that resource and then mm. have liaison officers who work with individual clubs around. Once the, the survey is done, these are your facility requirements, this is your academy requirements, centrally we're applying for this amount of money and you will get this amount over this period of time. It won't be everything, you're going to have to fundraise part of that yourselves, but we commit to giving you X amount and you're going to have to raise the rest. Like There's, there's, there's templates from World Sport, there's templates from Irish Sport about how to do this. Let's hear from, from Jonathan Hill. Here he is talking to you about how the Euro 2028 20, bid came around. And that to me would be the key, is that um, if if we can have um, the Irish team part of the tournament itself, I don't think there's any question that the, um, uh, the, the, the young boys and girls in, in Ireland, um, uh, along with many other adults who will, be, um, who, who will enjoy the mm-hmm. tournament, will not be inspired to take up the sport of football. That is what we're here to do. And I think that inspiration, you've seen it in previous tournaments when Irish teams have been part of it, the effect on the nation and the galvanising effect on the nation is something only football can do. Yeah? The Irish national football team um, uh, has an effect on the, uh, on the nation in a way that no other sport in Ireland does. And that would be one really strong reason for me um, for us to be part of that actual process. Now, look, one of the things that UEFA are looking at is moving from 24 teams to potentially 32 teams mm. taking part in that tournament. Now, if it does go to 32 teams, it would be very much part of our objective, and this may again be written into the, uh, the 26 to 30 um, strategic plan, for us to qualify directly to the tournament, whether we're hosting it or not. And I think that the effect on Irish football 
of having the men's senior team, and by the way, having the women's senior team qualify for a Euro of a World Cup, is absolutely transformative um, for the game. And that's that would be my simple answer to your question. It will inspire um, everyone to become involved in our sport. That's what we're here to do. So that's about participation. I think that was one of the other kind of things that didn't get talked about a, a huge... Participation is actually one of the main pillars. If there are loads and loads of people, more people playing football, then they will ultimately end up being football fans and they can be uh, transformed into national team fans or local League of Ireland fans. I, I, I buy that participation is hugely important. It wasn't sold as participation. It was sold as we want to inspire by getting tournaments here as opposed to we want to inspire by getting us two tournaments and then if tournaments happen to be here in the future that's great but we're not going to waste too much time and energy thinking about it and that's that aspect of it let's move on because you did ask him about working as the uh, CEO uh, in Ireland while actually not living here full time have you been able while not living in the country been able to grasp all the various different factions that are there within Irish football oh, look, I've, been, I've, I've been working um, uh, 12 hour days every day since I started 15 months ago in relation to uh, building my understanding of Irish football and uh, talking to, as you say, all of the many disparate and different stakeholders across the game. So I think I've built up a pretty good understanding of, um, of, of some of the core issues. And by what, by the way, some of, the, uh, some of them are not rocket science. And to answer your question, one of the things we do need to do is to get people who may have what look like diametrically opposed um, views on a specific subject into one room so we can talk through the issues to see if we can come up with a solution. And unless we do that, we won't come up with solutions. But that needs everyone to come into the room and to come into the room um, in the right frame of mind and um, with the belief that we can find solutions to some of these historical legacy issues that we've got. Are you going to move to Ireland? Uh, look, I am. I, 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 all of this has been complicated by the pandemic. Mm, and you're very clearly. much aware of what's happened in terms of first six months that I was in the job, nobody could move from one place to another. We were all in lockdown anyway. Um, I am now working um, uh, five days a week here um, in, in Abbottstown. I'm actually working in an office where there are no other staff in here because the office hasn't been open. But I understand symbolically how important mm. it is for me to be here. Has it been a concern for the board, Roy? Um, no, it hasn't been a concern. Um, so, and, and, you know, at, at, at a level... Um, it's a little bit strange having this conversation about you know somebody not coming to the office and working in the office where for the last couple of years nobody's been able, able, able to do that and and as we've evolved through a pandemic people's attitude to work in the workplace and what's what's appropriate and what's going to be known in the future has completely changed from my perspective as, as I look at it and I probably work uh, the, the closest uh, uh, with, with Jonathan you know on board in, in my role um, you know I have a very simple view I mean um, you kind of judge people on outcomes. You judge them on their effectiveness, their productiveness, uh, and their work ethic, and, and, and how they go about it. So Jonathan, in my view, and in the board's view, is doing a really excellent job. It's funny, Nathan, but all of the stuff that we've seen from Jonathan really has been, uh, from Jonathan Hill, has been uh, short sound bites or uh, in-house media stuff. He's actually a very good performer when he's having conversations that are conversational about stuff that he is intimately familiar with. And a bit more of this wouldn't really hurt when it comes to establishing trust, establishing a relationship and establishing credibility. I know everybody's like, oh, John Delaney. 
and that ghost haunts everybody in all these conversations but actually you can't just not do stuff because John Delaney did it like he, he should be in the media he should be saying this is our vision this is how we're getting those stakeholders together that point of getting people it's not rocket science it's interesting to hear because you like you know I mean it, it may well be Israel Palestine it may well be Northern Ireland to try and get uh, Dublin schoolboys and the uh, uh, Dublin League of Ireland clubs uh, all heading in the same path but it might not be you know and maybe somebody from outside goes, well, this is a fairly easy solution here. You do this and you do that and we'll pay for this and away we go. Well, exactly. You don't want to go down the John Delaney route where he didn't speak or answer to the media for three, four years at one stage. Uh, I think it'd be great for Jonathan Hill to have these sit-downs on a regular basis because there is a passion and a huge interest in Irish football. And actually, everyone does want all the detail. They want to get into the minutia of what you plan around League of Ireland, schoolboy football, Stephen Kenny's contract, sponsorship deals. Everyone is fascinated by all of this and wants to know. And it'd be great to you know, offer Jonathan Hill the chance to come on the show and sit for an hour and give his vision and have that conversation and hopefully he'll take it up over the next while. So yeah, I think he's, he's a very accomplished uh, performer. And uh, you know, as I say, you can see Roy Barrett has his backing. It was interesting uh, you know, about his abilities because I think a couple of the question marks have been about getting a deal done uh, because... You know, it's over two months now since he was tasked with securing Stephen Kenny's contract. Uh, that still hasn't been done, despite everyone saying that Stephen Kenny wants to stay on and the FAI wants him to stay on. Uh, but he says it'll definitely be done in the next month or so. Uh, obviously, the Anthony Barry news has probably thrown uh, a little bit of a spanner in the works there as well in terms of backroom staff. And the other one then is the sponsorship deal, which maybe is more symbolic than anything else. A sponsor for... Uh, the men's senior team. He's very keen to point out that they brought Sky on board for the women's national team, which is a very important deal, which I think most people would agree with. Uh, but symbolically for the FAI to say, actually, a big business has come on board. And Roy Barrett was sort of making the point that they probably could have got deals done, but that with every passing month, the FAI's reputation is being restored a little bit more and the results on the pitch are better. So instead of taking the cheap deal yeah. six months ago, actually getting the full value and so I think when you break it down into how these decisions work, like it is a sponsorship manager going into CEO saying we should sponsor the men's national team. and For multi-years. That's, yeah. that's a hard sell at times, I'm sure, when it's a seven-figure deal to sponsor the men's national yeah. team, to make that sort of investment when there's always a concern of what's around the corner uh, with the FAI. But maybe, maybe that's coming to an end. Yeah. All right. Nathan, good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, lads. It's 11 minutes past eight. We've had a very busy show still to come on OTBM between now and 10 o'clock. We're going to hear John Duggan's picks on virtual insanity this week. We're talking rugby with Keith Wood. Up next, Daniel Harris is going to talk to us about Manchester United. OTB AM. You'll have heard a clip from the Koi Gig podcast there on the OTB Podcast Network. It's in association with Cadbury FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. That was Ireland and Birmingham's Harriet Scott chatting with Karen Duggan and Kathleen McNamee. And that podcast is available on the OTB Sports app or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, now, 14 minutes past eight. Time to turn to Manchester United. Daniel Harris is with us. Um, Daniel, there was a real sense of deja vu watching the team last night. It's hard to distinguish this team in some ways from as far back as the Van Gaal and Mourinho teams but it certainly had a, a bang of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer off it last night is there is that just where Man United are at the moment until a new proper manager comes in with the long term vision who has the full backing of a transfer window behind him uh, you don't know because we've obviously as you say we've been here before it feels like there have been some improvements over the last few games. I felt with Rangnick that 
it didn't get it didn't get better quickly enough. That was kind of troubling the way it was still crap, really, like in the same way that it was rubbish under Ole for so long. But the last the last few games have been better. The second half of Brentford, um, some of the Villa game, the um, the first half of the Villa game, the um, West Ham they played they played acceptably and um, they played really well against Southampton, but but lost. Not Southampton, sorry, against Bournemouth, but lost. And again, last night, they were good. They were, I mean, good is probably actually a little bit stronger. They played acceptably in the first half. But what they lack is the ability to put down a 90-minute performance. I mean, the way that they played last night, a proper team, when Burnley equalises, go on and win by a couple of goals. And United, they just lack the little bit of quality, quality and a little bit of cohesion. And you can blame some of it on the manager, but these players have got numerous managers sacked and they should know what to do on a football pitch at this point and they shouldn't need exactly telling. There are other issues in that they need to send it forward badly and that the, they need to settle on a lineup so that players can settle So and players can get used to playing with each other. So, for example, Jaden Sancho, probably United's best tackle last night, when he's had some opportunity to play for longer with some of the other players, they'll probably find him slightly easier to read because, I mean, you're watching and you're never... The thing with Sancho is he's unpredictable in some ways. You're not quite sure what he's going to do because he's capable of so much. And so I feel like the players need to get onto his wavelength, which they aren't quite yet. Is that a coaching issue? Like, if... if and not just about Sancho but about the players around him who are told okay this is what Sancho does in these scenarios these are the options that he is going to give you if you're running off the ball and you need to spend time on the on the pitch with him because maybe we're expecting too much from Ranić in that short period of time given how it seems decimated the confidence of the squad was but fundamentally is it a coaching issue with Sancho that you can look forward with some positivity around that signing and think there are signs of creativity if somebody who knows what they're doing is on the coaching pitch with the rest of the players they'll begin to understand what he's trying to do um, I don't know if it's entirely a coaching issue just because I guess in the first instance the coaching issue probably the coaching probably is focused on not allowing opponents to swan down the middle of the pitch and tossing goals in every five seconds and much more basic stuff like defending and running and which is also has improved like one thing I would say about last night the quality wasn't there but it felt like they put a lot into the game the players which wasn't happening previously. They've probably, I mean, I'm guessing, I imagine they've also done a lot of work on shape, much more so than the kind of runs that you make to particular players, which I guess comes slightly later. But one of the things that I guess is partly a coaching issue, or at least like a management issue, is to me, it doesn't seem like, first of all, Ronaldo needs to either decide what player he's going to be or what kind of centre forward he's going to be or be told. Is he someone who comes short for the ball and, uses and holds it up and touches off and lets the runners go past him or is he going to be someone who stays in the penalty area between the widths of the posts to me it's got to be that and at the moment he's sort of when he plays he's trying to do a bit of both and not doing either successfully because he ultimately is, is, he doesn't have the legs anymore to when when he's one-on-one with the last defender he's not going to go by because he's, he just doesn't have the legs anymore so he needs to decide is he going to where, where's he going to be and to me I don't think that his his he's not Teddy Sheringham. His his ability to play that Teddy Sheringham kind of role isn't isn't quite there. Particularly if you think that usually someone who plays that position or has played it plays it with a partner. So he has to play within the width of the posts. And then for that to happen, I feel like he needs to have the correct service, which to me means you have to have Sancho on the right and Rashford on the left. Rashford on the right 
is not really any kind of goal threat. And Sancho on the right is a really good crosser of the ball and has the ability to go inside and outside. Um, at least he wants, and he, he generally wants to move towards goal, but because he'd be on his stronger foot, there's a proper threat he's going to go on the outside. Whereas with Rashford, previously, the partnership that Rashford, Shaw and Bruno had down the left was one of the one of the better things about this team. And that's completely gone. And Rashford's now been shunted over to another position where he's not playing that well, but the best football that Rashford has ever played has been off the left. He's been a goal threat for United. He's been a, a threat, um, someone who can create a goal, someone who can score a goal, probably United's most reliable, most reliable big game player in the last few seasons. So... I don't really understand why he's playing down the right in the way that he is and Sancho's playing on the left. So I think if you that switch would probably give you that partnership back. It would also mean that Ronaldo had much better opportunity to get some and Cavani, whoever's playing some crosses to the front post. But ultimately, United have got to buy a centre forward this summer now. Is the Sancho Shaw relationship not actually working pretty well? It, it, it could be okay, but I think that Sancho, I think Sancho could do more on the right than Rashford can. I mean, Sancho is a really intelligent player, and um, him, 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 and Shaw linked up really well in the uh, in the in the, in the Borough game actually. But um, I think that his threat on the outside will help stretch the player if he's playing on the right, and also his crossing is good. And you've got two strikers that want to attack the near post. And previously, I guess it was tenable to have. To have uh, Rashford and Sa- to have Rashford, not Rashford, to have uh, Cavani and Ronaldo playing centre forward, two old men, because it felt like you were nurturing someone who was going to take over, which obviously doesn't look like it's going to happen now. And, uh, one of the footballing upshots of that is uh, it was very clear that you look at United and they need a midfield player like a, a number six. If Pog believes they need another one, unless Hannibal was able to step in and be that player. But you watch them now and they're desperate for a centre forward someone who knows where the goal is someone who knows how to score someone who's able to create goals for themselves someone who's able to be a 90 minute threat and neither Ronaldo nor Cavani are that and Cavani unfortunately this season when he's been available almost all of the time has been absolutely useless and on that, in the short term, it'll be interesting to see what Ranić does in terms of his team team selection. Because in, in in kind of before the game yesterday, when speaking to television, he said today it'll require a lot of sprinting, chasing balls, a lot of fight for second balls. So this best fits the profile for Edinson Cavani, which is why he starts today. I know you said that he's been rubbish when he's played this season, but if Ranić reckons that he's better at sprinting, chasing balls, I mean that's probably going to be a requirement for a lot of Premier League games over the next little while. So, so what does he do in the short term in terms of that team selection at number nine? But as uh, on that point, I would say one thing about Ranić because he seems to have the number of all of these, and slowly but carefully and methodically. He is picking them apart. If you look at the players that he's called that he's called out in interviews, he hasn't even called them out. It's been totally dispassionate. He said Cavani's in Uruguay, Martial didn't want to play, Lingard doesn't want to play. And he's doing it in such a dispassionate way. He has no axe to grind. It doesn't seem, there's no anger. There's no, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. There's none of that. There's just very precise this is what I'm finding and this is what I'm telling you is the case. And that is actually quite warming and quite welcoming. And yeah, he's on to Ronaldo. Of course he is. I mean, we can all watch Ronaldo and see. Um, And that said, signing Ronaldo even more so now, I don't think was a mistake, even though we can all see his limitations. I think the only thing that would be the case if United hadn't signed Ronaldo would be, as well as being nowhere in the league and out the FA Cup, they'd also be out of Europe. So ultimately signing Ronaldo was probably has worked out in that sense that if they hadn't assigned him they would also be out of the Champions League now and they're not 
But he's seen he's on to Ronaldo. I mean, he can't give Rannick what he wants for a centre forward. And the goals have also disappeared. So in that circumstance, what is he giving you? Almost nothing. And unfortunately, that's also the case with Cavani at the moment. And there's no real way around that. I mean, the team around them can play better, I suppose. Is there is there then a case that actually Radnick is doing a job here that will in the long run be very important where uh, a genuine dispassionate assessment is being made of every individual squad member as opposed to some kind of oh he's a good fella you know he's great around the place or he has a legacy here or I know this person which seem to kind of be a little bit at the heart of the recruitment and certainly the keeping everybody around and keeping everybody happy that like the squad is massively bloated and if somebody comes in and goes this guy has to go 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 then at least there is no opportunity blockers for the younger players you get to see what they are and you also diagnose correctly what the needs of the squad are yeah I mean we all I mean that, that's the thing is when you when you watch a team and you think well nothing is working you try with the senior players it is very you just kind of think well why not give the younger players a go so on that point I was kind of felt slightly disappointed that Hannibal wasn't on the bench last night and that in what circumstance are you really going to need Mata here who is someone who has absolutely no future at United it's absolutely astonishing that he's still even there um, so you do you do want to see that and I'm absolutely certain he fancies himself a centre-back as well because we're just watching how Harry Maguire is playing and the season that he has put down is absolutely untenable for someone who not only plays at the back for Manchester United but is the, is the captain and I think that you're right and that Rangnick is just identifying all of those areas ultimately the decisions will be made by whoever the next manager is but he'll be involved in that too but yeah I mean he is doing some kind of clearing job and one of the various things that cost Ole his job in the end apart from just performances if you look at his signings I mean if you look at all the signings post Fergie, probably Bruno Fernandes is the only one that has worked exactly in the way that you would want it to. Uh, we're talking about this in the car on the, on the way to the game yesterday, actually. Zlatan, we kind of gave a, sort of a 7 out of 10 to because he was better than what you had, but not good enough. But none of the other buys have been good enough. So it's all very well. I mean, you kind of sit there thinking, well, this is what needs to be done. And Rangnick is absolutely identifying the players, I think, that can't go forward with the club uh, and just getting it done in a way that Ole, for whatever reason, felt like he didn't want to do it, perhaps because he thought that if he'd have got rid of all the players needed to go last summer, he didn't trust the club to give him replacement. So he preferred to have someone rather than no one, as uh, the Smiths one said. But um, he, um, Rannick isn't doing that. He's picking them off one by one. And the question now is obviously whether they pick the right manager and pick the right players to come and replace them. I mean, we read the other day that they're going to look at 7,000 midfield players, but you just know that the list they're going to come back with is Declan Rice, Calvin Phillips, and that Haidara who plays for Leipzig. It's just, you don't have any faith that their methods are particularly good. The question is whether the next manager will be able to assimilate the players that he's given and whether he'll be given the players that he needs. And you don't really want to sit here and say, well, just, you need to go and buy this, 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 and this. So, because that process hasn't worked before, what you hope now is that there's more of an overarching strategy so that whoever comes in isn't going to think, well, the kind of way that he wants to play is very different from the kind of way that 
or they wanted to play because in theory he couldn't execute it or they wanted to play fast dynamic attacking football the question like, so that the next manager you think is going to be someone who's going to be able to do that but he needs to be able to get it out of these players and these players need to be able to get it out themselves because if you think about it they've all been managed by several several managers now and none of them have managed to do what is necessary for long enough for it to work so uh, you hope that Rangnick is as a is identifying everything that needs to change, but then affecting that change is a very different thing. I mean, we could all watch United and say all the things that are wrong. Um, the players might not be good enough, though. That's the fundamental thing that maybe with uh, Mourinho tried it, Van Gaal tried it. Okay, there's different squads, but like the the quality of player hasn't vastly improved to the point where, and I, I'm not talking about good enough to qualify for the. Uh, Champions League I'm talking about to mount a sustained title challenge season after season that the core of that team at the moment is not good enough No that's right um, I mean um, and that's why again like you have you think well it's a big summer to get the players right and it is uh, and you have no idea whether that's going to happen I mean as, as I'm absolutely certain we've uh, chortled before United were at the end of last season United were at that stage where they were the kind of status of team they were was could be anyone on a good day. And they somehow added Varane, Sancho and Ronaldo to that and got worse. And at that point, you start to wonder exactly if Alex Ferguson signed, signed some kind of deal with the devil, that United would be amazing all the time that he was there and then he would just have to accept that they would be dreadful the second that he left, which I guess was ultimately a deal that most United supporters would probably have signed up for. But just, there's just like a feeling about the club that of things not being right just that it's all a little bit rotten and a little bit off and how you how you change that I don't know because it's a kind of pervasive mentality isn't it that it's not just that the, the, the players really believe and that means that the person that comes in needs to be someone with that kind of consuming personality who's able to change the mood of everything and the way that Jurgen Klopp did at Liverpool and Ultimately, he of, of all the manage of all the things that didn't happen in the fir- in the sort of the, the post Fergie wilderness years, TM not getting Jurgen Klopp when they got Van Gaal instead was a phenomenal oversight. And maybe Jurgen Klopp just didn't want to leave Dortmund, but I mean the story goes obviously that Woodward started talking about Disneyland for adults, and he thought that they were going to be talking about football. Said absolutely not a chance, and obviously then happened to be available when Liverpool needed a manager. And now look, but the question about who is that? who is that next person who because obviously the best two best managers around the Klopp and Guardiola they happen to be managing United's rivals and they happen to be managing in the same league which is obviously problematic um, so who do you get who's able to compete with them and Pochettino is the obvious choice but with Pochettino you kind of you can make excuses for why it hasn't worked for him in Paris but nagging at the back of your mind is they got Mourinho when his best days had gone when he was kind of over that initial enthusiasm. Have we seen the best of Pochettino? Not sure. And also, is he's good, but is he good enough to beat Klopp or Guardiola? Also not sure. Ten Hag, I get, will be the other main candidate. It Does Eric Ten Hag have the personality to come in and dominate Old Trafford? Because if you look at the people that have succeeded at United, really, Matt Busby, Tommy Doherty, Alex Ferguson, even Ron Atkinson, who won a couple of the Cups and looked like he might sustain a title challenge, they all had that consuming personality in some way that was able to they were able to dominate the club in some way and the person who's able to do that is a rare person I, I don't know if Eric Ten Hag is that guy is he someone who'll be able to come in and do that so the next decision is obviously a massive decision 
I have more faith in the people making it than I did previously because uh, Rangnick knows about football and Darren Fletcher knows about football. So at least there are people that know something of football making those decisions. But whether they're making those decisions, whether they then pick the right person, whether the right person who can turn United into title challenges even, even exists. Because in order to win that title, you've got to get a lot of points. Thomas Tuchel hasn't been able to do it with Chelsea because of what it takes. I mean, Jurgen Klopp hasn't been able to do it with Liverpool this season. Like the bar, the bar of consistency in the Premier League now is very high. So whoever does it, whoever's able to do it, like the person might not even exist, but they obviously do need to make that right decision. And there is more in these players and these players are giving, but they also need to find it within themselves to give it. They can't just rely on themselves being agitated by some motivational genius like Jürgen Klopp. Yeah. If you're making the point there that football people will be making this decision, from what you've learned about Ralph Raniak over the last couple of months, can you guess what sort of manager he would go for? Like you've listed off the managers maybe that you'd like to see there, but what, what sort of what sort of guy is, is Raniak likely to be interested in as manager for, for, for Manchester United because he's going to be part of this decision? There was a story in Built um, a, few, a few weeks ago that um, he was asking for uh, Amadou Haidara in the in the transfer window and the board said no nah, because the next manager won't want him so Rangnick said well okay make the next manager Ten Hag and I know that he'll want this player um, don't know if that's true and obviously the board then said well we're not sure if it's going to be Ten Hag that sounds true in all aspects that he would want Ten Hag that the board would try and deny him the player because they because of the next manager even though they've been busy offering Paul Pogba new contracts for however long but and it's far hard to know how that one quite works out logically but it just all of that sounds believable he's going to want someone it will be he's going to play fast attacking pressure driven football with uh, pressure and pressing from the front and though the two and the two managers are Pochettino and Ten Hag I mean I mean, Ruben Amorim at the Sporting's meant to be good. Seems unlikely they're taking a chance on him. The other person who it would never be, but who I find extremely impressive, is uh, Ang Postecoglou, um, Celtic, who has turned that club around in and got them literally just gone picked three or four players who are now the best players in Scotland and completely revolutionised the way that Celtic are playing. But it won't be. It won't be those, those people. Well, when you, when no you were when you were talking about Sancho and everybody not knowing what to do, I was thinking back to was it the second goal in the Old Firm the other night where everybody knew exactly what everybody else was going to do, and it looked like it was pre-programmed because there was deep understanding, and it looked like they had conditioned themselves to to do this. Like it, not all, almost a set play, but not quite. But at least everybody understood there is a specific role, and then there are options when you have possession, which doesn't feel like that's coming through at United at the moment. No, it's not. And um, I don't know I, I don't know why that is. I think like, it could just be that yeah, that the coaching isn't good enough. It could also be that the players are so set in their ways of doing what they fancy that it's taking something to shake them out of a torpor. I mean, if you think about a lot of these players, they've played for so many managers, they've never really put put it together and it's hard to it's hard to go from doing the wrong things to doing the right things. And I'm pretty sure that's something that Rangnick is noticing about these players. Whereas with the players that Apostle Cogley brought in, they were, we've brought new players in and those players were, I guess, more reliant on the manager than the United ones were because the United ones think, well, there'll be another one along in a minute. And, and they're right. They're kind of, and yeah, well, they're right because this guy's literally not permanent and they're right because they keep getting new managers as well so they're not beholden to the manager in the same way the Celtic players are like well we better listen because otherwise we're going to lose titles again and 
as I said, like it, Ang Postecoglou is not going to be the next manager of United, but he's someone that stands out as someone who appears to have the tactical smarts and the personality to come in and do that. Because you think also he went into Celtic and people are like, who the hell's this guy? No one knew who he was. And within a very, very short period of time, you've got people involved with Celtic and people like me looking from the outside thinking, this guy knows something. This guy's got that consumptive personality that Ralph Rangnick doesn't really have it um, in terms of that he's... He's a details guy. He seems to be a details guy. He's not an inspirational guy, particularly. And certainly, that's the results on the pitch don't look like there's very much inspiring going on behind behind the scenes. No. Daniel, good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Cheers. See you again. Uh, Daniel Harris giving us his thoughts there on the situation at United. We've got loads of comments coming through, which we'll get to in just a moment. Uh, you can get us on 0879180180. That's the WhatsApp number. Or, of course, you can always just leave a comment on the YouTube stream as well. Now, Special competition for you. Aer Lingus is the official airline sponsor of the Irish rugby team, bringing home advantage to wherever the team plays. To celebrate, we have an amazing prize of a pair of match tickets, flights and two nights accommodation to be won for this weekend's Six Nations clash between France and Ireland. Daily winners will get an Irish jersey and also everybody is in with a chance to win the overall amazing prize. Just tell us who our mystery voice is, which former Ireland star was considering launching his own podcast. They, at least they download the first episode. One more time. Who was talking about? At least they download the first episode. To enter, you can WhatsApp the answer into 087-9180-180. You can tweet us, add off the ball. You can comment on our YouTube channel. Each Daily Winner will get an Ireland jersey and everybody goes into the draw on Thursday for the grand prize. Owen. Yeah, it is time for an update on the most important story in world sport. Let's have a look at Wagatha Christie. Rebecca Vardy versus Colleen Rooney libel case due to go to trial in May, but court filings were made at the British High Court yesterday. Here was what was reported in court. Hat tip to the Guardian where I got all these details. Now, filings suggest Rebecca Vardy and her former agent, Caroline Watt, had an ongoing relationship with reporters at The Sun. Discussing Colleen Rooney's now infamous post about her private stories being leaked to The Sun, Watt allegedly acknowledged a role in providing information to the paper, according to messages disclosed in the court. She said, Such a victim, poor Colleen, and it wasn't someone she trusted, it was me. The two of them also raised concerns that Rooney increasingly suspected Vardy of leaking to the media and had unfollowed her on Instagram. Caroline Watt suggested that if any issues were raised, they would claim that one of the girls in the office has my old laptop that had your password saved in it, so it will have been them. At one point, according to the messages, Vardy says she has no idea how Rooney would ever know who was responsible for providing information unless Halls, who is Sun journalist Andy Halls, has leaked it. Vardy then also complained that the Sun was not buying her photographs, telling what we still need to make money and suggested they contact senior executives at the newspaper. Now, on that day, that famous day that Colleen Rooney published the post on Twitter, which ended its dot 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 Rebecca Vardy's account, Rebecca Vardy sent a message to Caroline Watt stating, that is war. When Rooney went public with the accusation that Vardy was, uh, sorry, apologies, no, according to the messages then disclosed yesterday, on top of that, her agent replied, you will have to say, that you don't speak to anyone about her, but that recently your Insta has been following people you don't follow. Just say you have allowed a company to access it for sponsored posts and a former social media agency that has worked with you too. 
Then there were private messages that the filings also show, in which Rebecca Vardy described Colleen Rooney as a nasty B-word and a see you next Tuesday who needs to get over herself. The disclosure suggests Rebecca Vardy and Caroline Watt had repeated conversations about stories going to the sun and at one point they discussed whether to provide the newspaper with a story about an England footballer who had a secret child as a result of an affair. A month later, the sun published a story with the headline Married England Ace Has Love Child. Rebecca Vardy has accepted that payments were made to her by the son in the run-up to Colleen Rooney's accusation and Rooney's lawyers are seeking disclosure of these payments. Now, here's an important bit. Some of the private messages relating to the case are missing for a variety of reasons. Vardy's former agent said her mobile phone was accidentally dropped in the North Sea shortly after Rooney's lawyers requested access to the device. Rooney's lawyer said, Coincidentally, around the same time, all media files from Mrs. Vardy's WhatsApp conversation with Miss Watt also bizarrely disappeared and from all backups, whilst apparently in the process of exporting it to her solicitors. Now, Jamie Vardy also said that his WhatsApp was hacked and all conversations were deleted and could not be restored, while declining to allow Rooney's lawyers to examine his phone. The laptop used by Vardy during this time also no longer functions, while messages between Rebecca Vardy and Halls appear to have been deleted. Rebecca Vardy's own expert described the data recovery situation as surprising and unusual. Rebecca Vardy has, of course, strongly denied the accusations and has racked up a multi-million pound legal bill so far. Wow. This is um, this is getting good. I, I love the old, uh, the data got dropped in the sea. The North Sea. I mean, it's like, it's the coldest. Which you have oil. <laughs> oh, we're going to keep close eye on that. We're going to keep a very, very close eye. I really, it, I really hope, is this, is it going to make it all the way to court? Who knows? It feels like there might be something. Spent a lot of money already on legal bills. You'd want to maybe, someone's going to sit down and go, this is the, this is the running total. And if we run the rest of the way, it's going to double or treble or quadruple mm. or, or more. What do you think? Do you have that money? Do yeah. you want to spend that money? I mean, Jamie Wardy's going to be playing football until he's 50 this day. <laughs> Newcastle United. Oh, be uh, funding this this case, uh, right? John Duggan, good morning to you, Jared Owen. How are you doing? <laughs> Very good. Sorry, I got distracted there. Is, are we doing virtual insanity first? Is that what we're doing? Uh, I was told by your producer to do the bulletin first. Okay, good. Uh, which means that we go through last night's results. Uh, if you're only just joining us, folks, and you didn't know, Kurt Zuma played for West Ham against Watford, a one nil win. So there's a a cognitive dissonance between what David Moyes feels about the whole situation and then actually playing him. Uh, so there you go that's the but he loves animals he loves his horses and his dogs yeah the soulless cynical nature of football in full view uh, for everybody last night at the London Stadium which saw West Ham go fourth in the table at Man United's expense because United just can't finish the job at the moment under Ralph Rangnick one all draw at Burnley Paul Pogba scoring a couple of disallowed goals in the first half you could argue were unfortunate for United but ultimately Burnley had actually a bit of fight in the second half and United petered out Ronaldo left on the bench uh, which was interesting to see and didn't have the best uh, puss in him as it were uh, as your mother would say in terms of his reaction so look they're just waiting for Rangnick, I think, to go in the summer. But where will United be in the table by that stage? Where will Everton be in the table? 19th in terms of points. Uh, 19 points, rather. And uh, they're, yeah, just three points above the drop zone. And they're not too good to go down. 1951 was the last time. 3-1 defeat to Newcastle. Kieran Trippier with the goal. Uh, that was, I suppose, the highlight last night at St. James's. You might think that Newcastle probably bought enough to stay up. 
and um, Norwich are a bit resurgent. They play Crystal Palace tonight. If they win, it's definitely going to get interesting for Frank Lampard. Uh, Man City against Brentford this evening. Spurs against Southampton. And we also have Aston Villa against Leeds. Festi Abelselli scoring for Derby in their 3-1 yeah. win over Hull last night. He was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, night started. Festi started. Comes off when the game is in the bag. Absolutely uh, dominant. Looks like somebody who could be in the Ireland squad pretty soon. And they're four points from safety. Like, That's right. Uh, again... With everything that has gone on with the like Everton making come hither eyes at Wayne Rooney, with the story now that the FA are investigating him for wearing the long studs against Chelsea in 2006, was it 2006? That's right, 2006, yeah. Like, all of that going on and uh, the best players leaving because they can't get paid, he might keep them in the championship. It's unbelievable. It would be an unbelievable story. And the guy... I'm looking forward to this documentary when it comes out at the weekend, uh, the Rooney documentary on Amazon Prime. Hopefully they haven't given all the juicy bits to the papers in the last week. Uh, but it, it does seem like a guy's got something about him, Brain Rooney. And Fulham are now eight points clear at the top of the championships. They're going to be back in the Premier League next season. Alexander Mitrovic has had the most sensational season uh, in that championship, the, the Serbian striker. Ferry House lads uh, hosting eight races a day from 12.45. So much great content as well on OTB last night. Paddy Marr, Brian O'Driscoll. And obviously with Nathan speaking to Jonathan Hill and Roy Barish about the fact that they're confident they're going to get that title sponsor. Yeah, I hope they're right. Um, it would be good to see a good brand row in behind this Ireland team and in behind Stephen Kenny. And hopefully that new contract will be signed in time for the Belgium game. It's 8.43 this morning. OTBM is brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with their new and improved razors. It's time for Virtual Insanity. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! What have we got this week? Well, we do have audio now in the background. If you might listen, there's quite a nice jazz. Um, you know, I think... Uh, yeah, you got it? Can you hear it? That we can, yeah. Yeah, okay. Very good. Um, look, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jamiro Choir. Yeah. Well, it's... Or the... Whatever the... Muzak version. Yeah, the Muzak version. Uh, of yeah, I think good. it's actually the real version. <laughs> I think so. Okay, so this is the Waste Management Phoenix Open. It starts uh, tomorrow in Scottsdale in Arizona. You might remember, folks, on Super Bowl weekend, you'd see the 16th hole at this golf course where it's like a stadium hole and everybody goes absolutely crazy on the beer. And remember Tiger Woods at the hole and won back in 1997 and they just threw beer all over the course. So it's going to be fun uh, on Sunday watching this before the Super Bowl. Uh, so look, we're going to go for Scotty Scheffler as our headline pick this week for six each way at 25 to 1 for Scotty, um, who was in a tie for seventh in this tournament last year, has been second tied for second and fourth in three of his last six starts. We know he beat John Ram at the Ryder Cup. It is amazing that Scotty Scheffler has not won on the PGA Tour yet. He's 15th in the world. Uh, he was third in strokes gained with his approach shots at the Farmers Insurance Open last time out on his last start and he puts better on Bermuda Greens. He's a confident headline pick Scotty Scheffler at 25-1 to 1 for six each way in Arizona this week. And the second one, Louis Westhazen uh, three each way at 40-1 to 1 for the South African. Amazing that he's never won in America. He was second in the US Open last year, tied for second at the PGA. We know he won the Open at St Andrews back in 2010. He was the top-ranked putter in the Tour last year, Louis Westhazen. Hasn't played since November when he had a back injury at the RSM Classic, but based on his Instagram, uh, he seems to be healthy again. Could be a bit of rust, but he was third in this back in 2017 and tied for 11th last year. Louis Westhazen definitely thinks deserves to win in America. He's 40-1 to one for three each way. The next one is Keith Mitchell for 250 each way at 70-1. to one. Keith Mitchell has been in the top 12 in three of his last 
four starts on the PGA Tour, a previous winner of the Honda Classic on similar types of greens this week. Two years ago, he was 16th in this when he was playing a lot worse than he is now. Keith Mitchell, a very good ball striker, definitely has got a good chance of 72-1 for €2.50 each way. Uh, the same uh, stake €2.50 each way on Denny McCarthy at 125-1, to one, the guy with the Irish name the best putter on the tour in 2019-2020 but now what's happened with Denny McCarthy is his ball striking has you know, dramatically improved so seven cuts in a row finishing the top 15 five times including last week and like strokes gained he was 24th uh, last week uh, for the whole season and he was 108th last year so Denny McCarthy massive improvement and at 125 to 1 I think he's massively overpriced and finally Doug Gim the former top amateur in the world and top college player is 175 to 1 for a euro each pay you like him I, I like Doug I'm, I'm sticking with Doug I get a lot of stick for sticking with Doug but he's made seven cuts in a row a few years ago he was a low amateur in the world at the Masters and uh, Doug I think perks well on Bermuda greens as opposed to other surfaces and I'm giving him the chance maybe to get into the top 8 35 to 1 to get into the top 8. I think it might be worth risking on Doug. So Doug Gim, Denny McCarthy, uh, Keith Mitchell, and then uh, in descending order, Louis Westhazen. But the main guy this week, folks, and everybody's tipping him, and I'm just jumping on the bandwagon there, but I did tip him when they started this virtual insanity crusade two years ago in this tournament, Scotty Scheffler. I think he's going to get the job done this week, folks. All right, that's this week's edition of Virtual Insanity. Thanks, John. It's kind of the silence, OK. It's 8.47. You're very welcome uh, if you've just joined us to OTBAM. We'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch on the YouTube stream. You can uh, WhatsApp us on 0879-180-180. That is the number. Uh, and a reminder, OTBAM brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with their new and improved razors. We're all a little bit giddy ahead of Ireland against France this weekend. Uh, and I'm delighted to say Keith Wood is with us now. Keith, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? How are you, Jerry? You well? Yeah, looking forward to this. Like at a level that, um, you know... By the time the World Cup rolled around, we kind of knew what was going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen this weekend, but we feel pretty good about the state of our team. And yet this French team could be one of the great all-time teams. So like that, that's why we live as sports fans is to watch this stuff. Well, we want a bit of doubt, actually. No, we'd like the doubt to fall on our side and things to go well for us. But we do like the expectation that goes into it. We... Um, for me, since the autumn, we know of an expectation that we're going to play. And that's quite reassuring. And I'm not saying we don't want to win. We do want to win. But but I think I think we'll show up. And that's one of the great parts from, uh, from the particular manner in which Ireland are playing. Um, you then have France, who... Um, I, look, I, I don't compare France to us, strangely. I compare France to England, um, and to the ideological um, viewpoint of what their coaches have done, they look, they they bit early and decided they were going to bring young guys through. So now all the young guys have a huge amount of experience in international rugby, and they haven't won on it. They've they've won big matches, but they haven't won competitions. But they look like they're in a really good position to have a tilt at the trophy and. England on the other side seem to be chopping and changing consistently with no real sense of direction. Um, uh, I read um, Eddie Jones saying his his opinion is the only one that matters um, this week. And that's just an interesting view to have. Um, and for whatever reason, it just seems as if you know for certain that Andy Farrell is the boss in Ireland, but it seems to be a little bit more egalitarian. And I think the players are having an opportunity to make a lot of decisions. And the coaching ticket seemed to be fully trusted uh, 
uh, actual voices that are listened to, encouraged. There's uh, that egalitarian thing. Like you don't bring Paul O'Connell in and then tell him what to do. You you listen to what he has to say and you ask for his opinion and you collaborate and you you know you every they have built they have been built up as leaders. Like we we know who they are. We know their role within it. It's not this giant untrammeled ego in charge. Yeah, look, I, I, it's funny. I was trying to think of this during the week and wondering whether there was a drifting away from the coach being the, the be-all, end-all, all-knowing Mandarin that knows everything and everybody else is wrong. And I have to say, I go back to the reasons for playing and you want to be able to express yourself and you want to enjoy yourself and have a bit of fun. Every time I pick up anything on this Irish camp, there's an element of about freedom and enjoyment. And it's funny, I don't know whether that would have been the right thing to happen um, and would that have been successful prior to Joe Schmidt. But I think Joe Schmidt has given a sense of discipline in some of the process that's required. And I think we're seeing that through Paul O'Connell and I think that's very important. But I don't know that guys are getting castigated for dropping a ball and... Um, Whereas Johnny Sexton threw a 50-50 in the, the Welsh 22 last week, that would have been considered, um, you know, absolute disgrace a couple of years ago. No, it's at least he's trying. You know, at least that was an option for him. At least there was people trying to run the line for him. And um, I think they'd rather it stuck to hand, but I don't know that they're being drawn over the coals for that. Is that because, Keith, they reckon that if they do this enough and make the wrong decision in those 50-50 scenarios enough, they will eventually make the right decision in those 50-50 scenarios, say, in 12, 18 months' time? I think that's part of it. I think the decision-making is is good. I mean, I was looking at, um, at Ringrose's try, um, and the thing I, I loved about it, I don't know whether it was picked up or not, but Bundy, who I thought was incredible at the weekend, it's... Um, um, I think I thought we saw the full range of his of his skill set, but he looked up before he passed that long wide pass that got to the tip of of Ringrose's fingers. Um, it was a great pass, but it was the look and the effort and everything that went into it. I wouldn't be so like there's risk, high level of risk to that, and and Ringrose nearly knocked it on, and on such small margins are try scored and things like that, but. Um, I think you do want to try different things. I, I, it's one, having the skills to do it. It's two, practising them in a white hat of an international rugby match. And I thought we got both uh, the other day. I thought Wales were poor, but I thought we made them look poor. Um, and I thought we made plenty of mistakes. And I wasn't even vaguely upset by that. So it was. So there's a lot of room for improvement, but it seems to be in the right place. And, you know, that could all come a cropper this weekend. And I just hope we don't go back into our shell. I hope we continue with that idea of trying things because it's enjoyable to watch. Um, But also it looks like it's incredibly enjoyable to play. And the players actually look as if they're they're enjoying it. There is a world where these these risks backfire. And so Wales score their try. It's a a beautiful pass to... uh, Set the the flanker into space, run in under the under the post. The type of thing that exactly I think under the the previous regime would have been like never try that again. But actually, there is a cost to playing on the edge, and that cost is that sometimes things go awry. the The benefit is that 
more often than not, the creativity that you have will be impossible for the opposition defence to smother the way it turned out you could just batter us under Schmidt um, and the big teams frequently did that to us. Uh, when when this comes, when, when we lose a game because of uh, too many risks, when there's two intercept tries scored against us in the same game, we lose by one. Like, what do we do then? How, how do we prepare ourselves for this potential eventuality? And uh, is that where the challenge comes? And it's like, actually, you've got to double down and keep going. Throw that pass again. Um, look, I think rarely matches come down to one or two things. And it, it often happens because people look for infection points in games. But I think if you have that set as a philosophy that that's how you're going to play because it puts teams under huge pressure, you know that teams are going to figure that out over a period of time. They're going to see some of the tells that are are more common. I just think there's a lot of tells at the moment. But uh, sorry, there's a lot of options at the moment, and it's hard to figure out which tell tells which. But um, uh, in time, that will be found out. So this can't. This is not static. This has to change. This has to improve all the time. But I think the philosophy of saying. We don't want to stifle creativity, you know. So you are allowed, uh, this is like a harsh criticism of of uh, Joe Schmidt, but it actually worked. So it worked until it didn't work. And whereas um, you, you kept doing it exactly as described until there was a chink. And then when that chink happened, you knew you were going to score. Um, well, that got figured out. And when it was figured out, we were never getting to that chink that was stopping three or four or five phases beforehand. And we were under a huge amount of pressure. And that was the bit that changed. So I think now if you can, you could say then that if something was on then, but it was in the midst of a, of a play that was going to happen, that was frowned upon. Um, so now we're seeing creativity. Look, I was critical of, of this coaching setup because I felt that they weren't making a change from the Joe Schmidt era. And it seemed to be similar to, to what it was like in the last year of, of Joe Schmidt's reign when when we were under huge pressure all the time. I felt as if we continued with that. Um, and my cat, for me, wasn't making as much of a change to it. But I think maybe... Well, we're wrong in, in some respects, but it took time. So it took time to to get away from that idea where where you could be creative. So I look, I, it's enjoyable to watch. I mean, like I, I, I thought it was a, it was a really good game. I mean, I would have rather the game was closer because that's what the Six Nations are about. But that's not Ireland's fault. And um, I thought it was. I thought it was an impressive start, which we don't start that well. And I thought we kept it up for the vast majority of the game. Um, before I ask you about France and, and what you think you're going to get from them this weekend, what do you make of the noise around England at the moment? Because from from the outside, it seems like this is stereotypical preparation for a World Cup from Eddie Jones, where he does not care what happens in the Six Nations. And yet I see calls for him to be sacked. The back page of the, the Telegraph this morning, what will it take for Jones to be sacked? It's James Corrigan writing the piece. And uh, I'm like... What they've got a bunch of kids who are getting unbelievable experience in high pressure environment. He's absolutely preparing them for what's coming next, and their raft of injuries is as bad as Wales, pretty much. Like this isn't the England team that we're seeing at the moment; it's England's nearly B team, and it's invaluable for when it comes to crunch moments this time next year, and uh, more importantly, in eighteen months' time. Yeah, I I don't agree with that, Jer. Uh, sure. I um. 
Um, I do like to see young guys getting a chance, um, but there has to be method to the madness. And the amount of players that have been used, you do need some level of consistency in selection for, for players to try and go and do it. And also you need to try and play a style that suits the players that you have. So, um, and I, I look, I've, I've read some of the comments and um um, Eddie Jones has just said, look, a lot of the pundits and whatever, they're fantastic retrospectively. But um, we spoke, uh, Stuart Barnes was on off the ball with me last Wednesday and we spoke before the team was announced that if they pick Marcus Smith, we really hope that they have a big centre playing 12 and Don Brandt playing eight because they absolutely suit each other. Um, uh, Eddie is convinced that play, the number of the players back doesn't really matter. Well, that's a, a viewpoint. It's not a viewpoint I'd agree with. I do think you can play in different positions, but players that are playing at the top of their game in a particular jersey, that's the reason you pick them. You don't pick them to put them into another jersey. And when they brought Don Brandt on um, with 15 minutes to go, they put him on the flank, which is just... And then they took Marcus Smith off. So it didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense with it. And so, I look, I think he is... He's trying to figure out what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. I, I don't know that we'd ever get away with that in Ireland, actually. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I, do, I don't. Um, I think it's international rugby is incredibly tough, incredibly pressurized. But you want to have some level of consistency in it so that you can see a level of growth. At the moment, um, I mean, I look, I thought the decisions he made taking the players off at the time he did destabilised the team a little and England were in control of that game but didn't get as much scores on the board or as many scores on the board as they needed but in the last 15 minutes Scotland ran riot you know and um, and that coincided with the changes that were made so look I don't know I, I, I think he's getting a lot of criticism um, um, for me it's I always think England should be pretty much the top of the tree uh, and they are boom or bust under Eddie Jones. They're either winning or the bottom of the table, nearly. And given the quality that they have, the, the, even in their bust time, they should be winning these games. They should be n- near the top c- c- consistently. Yeah, but just but on that as well, I just you're saying that it's um, they have a huge injury profile. Yes, they have, but he also decided not to bring a load of seasoned players, and. Um, and then he can say, well, this is the team that we have. These are the people. Well, he actually got rid of a lot of guys. Now, whether he should have or shouldn't isn't the point, but it isn't as if they're all injured. And when you looked at that team, uh, having played against teams, now this could be as much my mindset as their mindset, but having played against English teams that have uh, world-class players all over the team, when you're looking at this English team, you're saying... If some good players there, but how many of those guys are world class? Not many, I'd say. It's a fair point. I suppose we we might have thought that up until the World Cup, where the team gelled and had that opportunity to come through. So, look, it's definitely a very different way of team building than we have at the moment. I I certainly would not be in any rush. I'm surprised that the outcry is so severe at the moment when it looks 
fairly obvious that even by leaving out the season players, he's just making room. It's like you know, you, you prune the rose bush and what grows back grows back. And some of those old lads might come back into the team. Like he's already shown some flexibility in bringing forward back, and he's getting criticised for that. I'm like, that's what happens. You know, you've got injuries to people who you want to play, and you have somebody who you, you've trusted, and he's supposed to be able to. Ford is experienced enough to be able to come on and and play well in a game like that. But um, I don't know. I guess yeah. I'm I, interested in that, Chair. I, and I'm I'm I'm. It's funny because I, I would agree with making those and actually prune a brush a bush and they come back. That's that's right. But they're actually playing quite a slow style of rugby, and it's funny because the criticisms that we've had here over some of Monsters' play or some of Ireland's play has been because we've been very slow and things have slowed things down. England are still playing in that way at nine, but you pick a guy like Marcus Smith at ten who thrives off quick ball. Um, he is not; he plays to a structure, but he but he plays to a very quick structure. So if you're going to play it slow, I don't know that you necessarily pick Marcus Smith at 10. Okay, fair enough. We'll come back to England because I, I do want to talk a little bit more just about Ireland and, and the, the evolution of uh, Tyg Furlong. It's funny, when we talk about Bundy and uh, Bundy's, um, the range of skills that Bundy is exhibiting at the moment being a progression on where he has been in the past. The Connacht fans get up in arms and they tweet us and they screen grab it and they say, this is nonsense, he's been doing this for years, he just wasn't allowed to in the past. And I'm like, hang on, may- that may be true. But actually, all the players seem to be getting better. Even Furlong and Sexton seem to be better now because the system is playing to their strengths and it's demanding more of them or it's giving them more opportunity to showcase their skills. So in that context, can you talk to us a little bit about the the evolution of Furlong, who we always raved about as being genuinely world-class, but every year he seems to get even better and better and better. Well, again, it's it's a structure or a system, um, but it's also a philosophy. So... Um, you know, if you're not allowed to pass very often, well, you're not going to pass that often um, if you are and if people are expecting it. So that's, I think, been the transition and that period of time where we were a bit critical of Mike Cat and and the systems and structures that came in. Um, I think a lot of that is down to the fact that you want a level of certainty. And even if the certainty is that the ball is always going to be live, that there's a great chance it's going to be popped or pushed out the back door or um, uh, dropped off to somebody, that the hands are up and people are waiting. You know, that that as a change is colossal. I think Furlong has always had that, actually. I just think we're now in a system where it can be seen more often. And, and it also isn't just him. So... Um, I, you know, at times I think he was rushing almost to get there to be the guy to do it. I don't think he is now. I think it's a, com- a comfortable place for him because there's other players doing it. So it's a shared load amongst all the forwards, um, uh, forwards and the backs actually. And it's it's very funny. There was a, a comment from um, Philippe Saint Andre saying that they're. Um, they were talking about Johnny Sexton and um, they were saying they're relying less and less on Johnny Sexton. Um, and he said, well, he, he would go with Ross Byrne, right? Which is one of those typical salvos that happened the week of a match. Actually, I agreed with the first part of it. And I think that that is the strength of the system, that the reliance is on far more people than just Johnny Sexton. And actually, Johnny looks like he's relishing the role. And look, I was critical of what would happen if we didn't have him. 
um, I didn't think we were protecting him and I, I didn't think we were, um, I didn't think he was protecting himself or if he was, he was too deep and then he wasn't effective enough for the team. Now I think you get the chance to see him that he's pretty well protected, but that everybody else is sharing the load. So um, I do think the reliance on him is less and less, like Philippe Santandre said, but I I see the merit of that. I think that that's, that's a great place. I think it's good for Johnny. I think it's good for the Irish team. Um, if you're in that selection meeting, are you trying to shoehorn Ian Henderson onto the bench at the very least? Are you trying to find a role for Robbie Henshaw in the starting team or... What, what's your gut instinct on that? I know you haven't seen training, so it's a kind of it's an unfair question. No, but. it is it is kind of hard to see it in that. Um, I do see the Henderson idea. Um, um, whatever we do, I think Ty Byrne has to be on that team, be it at blindside flanker or in the second row. And do you require? a heavy scrummaging second row um, against France. And that may well be the case that that is the right thing to do. Or do you just try and run them across the pitch totally so that you try and burn them out after 20 minutes, which is what they used to do with us in the past. Um, I think they are the questions that you have in there. Um, um, Like it's hard to drop guys from our back five. You know, it's it's. I thought James Ryan had one of his, his better games for Ireland, um, um, but yeah, I could see it. But you know, I might start with um, with Tyburn uh, in the second row and maybe move Henderson onto the bench. And I have to say, I would probably do the same with the uh, with Henshaw on the bench, and I would have him on the bench. Um, um, I wouldn't mind if he was playing. It doesn't matter. I think they've played well. But I, I did think that Ringrose played really well the other day with a lot of space. And he was given space. And he, I think he showed how difficult it is to play and defend at 13. He Josh Adams inside out for most of the game. Um, and I thought he played very well. So they looked pretty decent. I also liked the fact of um, Mac Hansen coming in off the wing Um it just pushes everybody out a little bit and it means guys are involved. I think that's, but again, that's a good addition to have. And they'd started that a little bit with Lowe coming in off the wing more last season. I, yeah, I think, I think his, his uh, insertions at time were, were, were really beneficial to the team. So look, I think they played well and um, we never know what's happening because last week they said that there was a full squad and then they said afterwards there was three or four guys that were injured. So a lot depends on what happens here. I'm not worried for the first time in a long while that we have enough of strength and depth, but not of players that fill the spot, but players that can go and actually add something to it. So I, th- I think we're in a strange position where we have plenty of players, you know. Is there a chance that France can do what England have done to Ireland in those recent years when England were playing well than, and actually brutalise us a little bit at the weekend? It's something that, um, you know, New Zealand didn't try and do that. England were underpowered last year against us. We haven't, we haven't come up against a side as physically as imposing as this French side could be if they chose to play that way against us. Yeah, I, I mean, I think France will choose to play very aggressively in the forwards and try and run us ragged as well at the same time. So... Um, is there a chance? There is a chance. I think this particular French team, the quality that they have, um, their freedom that they have, which is like France of old, is 
is extraordinary. Now, there's a good pragmatic element to it, and I think Sean Edwards has put in a really good defensive system. I think Ireland's defence has been fantastic. We didn't mention that um, so far. We didn't give a huge amount of opportunity to Wales. I actually think it's just going to be a cracker of a game. I would be, I would say France are favourites because they're playing at home. Um, I would say uh, this was the one game I looked at when I looked at this year that I thought Ireland there's a good chance they'd lose. Um, I didn't see a Grand Slam this year. Um, uh, having said that, I didn't think we were perfect at the weekend. And I see merit in us having a higher expectation for our standard for this weekend. So I think it'll be unbelievably close. And some of these games are only one or two points in it. And I think that could be the case. Um, but like an awful lot of things, I think they rely on some of the referees' interpretation and they rely on yellow cards and um, and red cards. So it's becoming much harder to make a view because those things seem to happen an awful lot in games at the moment. But I, I think it's going to be, I think it's the game of the championship. Um, I think there are two of the teams that can, can play the best rugby and it's whether they negate each other out um, as to whether that will happen. And I think it depends on the weather. I mean, one of the things I'd say for last weekend, elements of the game were sloppy, but it rained and it was very greasy, both in Paris and in Dublin. So I don't think we got to see both their sides at full tilt, but with one match under it, you never know, and maybe the six-day turnaround for France might be one day that they're just a little bit too too tired and we might benefit from that as well. So I'd like to see the first 20 minutes and a million miles an hour and see what happens then. It, it does feel that Ireland and the, the mood around the camp is a lot more positive now than it was around the last two meetings against France and two meetings ago France beat Ireland by eight points last year they beat Ireland by two points even though from memory you would think that there might have been a bigger gulf between the teams so does that give you added hope that maybe France don't necessarily compound their dominance over a team on the scoreboard? Uh, they don't yet yeah and but I but I would say when you look at France and you look at the French psyche um, this and the English games are really the two games that they're they're gunning for in this Six Nations. So they will be at um, full emotional strength for this one because this is the one that they consider the challenge. It's one of the criticisms that you have of France that they can't sustain that over the full season. So with the team that they've had, they should have won the Grand Slam and they haven't won one since 2010. So... Um, the uh, I would expect to see them on tip-top form because this is the big one for them. And that's how they've played it. That's how they've got to it. It's part of their journey to um, to the World Cup for next year. And, there's, and I have no doubt whatsoever, all their eggs are in the basket to win the World Cup. If they lose matches in the Six Nations, they'll be upset because they want to win. But they can justify it for the greater good of winning the World Cup. That's where they'll be looking for it. So, so in light of that, this is, I think, their biggest match this season um, because Ireland are playing really, really well and they're being compared to Ireland. So they don't like that. So they want to be out on their own. So, I look, I just think it's going to be the game of games. Bring it on. Keith, great stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, gents. That's Keith Wood giving us his thoughts ahead of that game at the weekend. If you want to go to that match in Paris... 
then listen up because we've got a competition for you and it's an absolutely fabulous prize courtesy of our friends at Aer Lingus the official airline sponsor of the Irish rugby team bringing home advantage to wherever the team plays to celebrate as I said we've an amazing prize it's a pair of match tickets flights and two nights accommodation to be won for this weekend's game between France and Ireland to enter you need to WhatsApp us 0879180180 is the WhatsApp number you need to leave a comment on our YouTube stream or you need to tweet us and tell us which former Ireland star was considering launching his own podcast they, at least they download the first episode we've got uh, Daily Winners Prize as well with an Ireland jersey who's this? They, at least they download the first episode if you uh, enter you're going to be with a chance to win all you've got to do as I said WhatsApp is 87 9180 180. Uh, each daily winner will, will win an Ireland jersey and then obviously everybody goes into the draw on Thursday for the grand prize it is 14 minutes past 9 this morning and it's time for us to look at this morning's newspapers a reminder of course OTBAM brought to you by Gillette good morning start with Gillette put your best face forward with their new and improved razors that's uh, Brian O'Driscoll talking about Sexton he just sees it clearer than most players uh, the GPA want Congress to merge the GAA with Camogie and women's football uh, and then Elsa Desmond, who finished 33rd of 35 competitors at the Luge overnight, uh, is ecstatic with her performance. And Neve Briggs, eager to add vast experience to Irish coaching ticket. That's um, Neve Briggs of this parish, of course, in the Red 78 podcast, who has joined the Ireland coaching ticket. Um, back page of the Irish Independent. We don't want PlayStation rugby. Ryan Hale's change of style as Ireland put their game plan to the test against France. It's not meant as a dig at the previous regime, obviously. But it's hard not to read it that way, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. Like it, I mean, I presume some of his words yesterday are also based on the fact about how far Ireland takes this and the constant development towards creative rugby. And maybe they feel that there's kind of like an end point that they're reaching, that there needs to be an element of practicality in it as well. Like that's that would be one of the things Faz would say we don't want to play PlayStation rugby we want to play what's in front of us not just playing the play for the sake of it just playing early to where the space is or playing what's on yeah fair I, like I mean that is I, I guess the way I read that was not necessarily doing the, the fun thing uh, for the sake of it but I guess you could also look at it the other way being like don't do the boring thing uh, it's pre-programmed it's it means yeah it's like the Gary Neville version of PlayStation it's not the I love PlayStation having crack yeah. sitting on my beanbag smoking dubs that's not what they're talking about there now in fairness there was a move in Rugby 08 where you could just run up to the sideline and nobody would be able to catch you and you could run for a try it was a very very effective form of rugby playing it wasn't good on the eye no I'd say Everybody, it was pretty boring it was like oh, I'm going to do this one thing that I know is going to work my parents were seriously worried about me when I was like killing the buzz in Rugby 08 completely it was like we just actually play this game a little bit better what was your addiction what was your gaming addiction that sometimes we forget to mention on this that you were like completely were you like in the world's top something or other at some oh, game I was um, I can't remember I think it was it was, it was the Beijing 08 video game on, on Xbox 360 yeah. you were like literally the top 10 in the world or something in one of the events yeah I'm trying to think what it was I think it, it might have been Javelin where you had to was that the, no, because no. people hacked the javelin thing, and I, I, you couldn't get into the top ten there. I don't know who, I don't know why you would hack that game, but they did. I can't remember what it was. There was definitely something. It wasn't one of. The did you like buttons. miss a week in school because you were so tired because you were staying up late? You were no, like, was there something? Actually, was there some never, some never extreme version of this that was going on in your life that required an intervention? No, not really. I mean, I, I, like, I mean, I've, interve- I've intervened on myself quite a bit when it comes to like football manager and the likes of that, where I've just had to like delete the game and stop playing it because it is a real addiction um, the, as I said there the, it's the 
Telegraph, uh, James Corrigan in the back. What will it take for Jones to be sacked? I don't know. They're not going to sack him now. It would be madness to sack him, wouldn't it? Uh, Anderson and Broad by England, and that's Kieran Trippier, who might have um, injured himself celebrating after he scored his uh, free kick, but went off injured. Um, the back page of The Sun. Forget computer, James. Uh, and it is rugby 08. Uh, console prize. Cons- con- con- console prize? video game uh, Cats and Pogs Paul Nets but it's agony for Ralph after Ronaldo benched and obviously Kurt's caught in perfect storm I mean it's good for the headline right? it's, it's pretty gross though uh, and that's the uh, Herald is kind of the same headlines we don't want to play PlayStation Rugby United held by Burnley um, and then obviously the crickets is the big story there scare tactics Ireland's joint Euros bid aims to deter rivals that's Philip Quinn talking about how successful or otherwise this um five-way bid is going to be for the Euros how could they pick him West Ham condemn Zuma for animal cruelty and then select him and sex him we must take it to next level in Paris and then the Times the London Times uh, Anderson and Broad ditch and Ashes Cole Jones hits back over Smith Cole and Moyes stands by Cat Attacker and that's a picture of a pretty haggard looking Cristiano at the end of the game who's looking every inch his age at this point and I would suggest that he's on his way to the MLS uh, in the off season, but it's the front pages of the two of the tablets we want to bring in this morning. The Gypsy Kingahan. This is uh, Daniel Kinahan and Tyson Fury pictured in Dubai at an MMA gym. Uh, there's a series of pictures I'll get to in a moment. And Sheikh Don. So it's obviously Tyson Fury in Shake Down. In uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's Don. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, gang boss Kinahan and world champ boxer Fury all smiles in Dubai and it's um, Daniel Kinahan and Tyson Fury in Dubai I think this wasn't just on Insta there was some Insta from Tyson Fury the other day which in fairness um, uh, had been highlighted in the papers at the weekend as well but there were uh, paparazzi it seems like a, a bunch of photographers at us so you can actually see their Lawless of, Lawless of Arabia is the headline and this is in The Star who have obviously been covering this um, story a lot uh, and there's, you can see can you see there's loads of photographers around so obviously it was a press call the whole point about this was to get the photographs out there um, they're with boxer Zaid Khan in Dubai and um, yeah so it, it's an interesting time for this to re-emerge when Obviously, there are big fights on at the moment that are connected to MTK and um, ESPN. Their boxing guy is writing about all the fighters that Daniel Kinahan is advising who are fighting in big fights at the moment. And so, obviously, they've just decided that now is the time to go public again with this. And uh, Tyson Fury, obviously, very happy to be associated with um, Daniel Kinahan. So, uh, that's the picture in the mirror here. So, it's... Tyson out and about Kin Dubai and then the other side of that is um, Justin Bieber and Conor McGregor playing tennis in the Bahamas well, I don't know if they're actually playing tennis against each other I think, think that was just a chance encounter I think uh, Bieber had just come off the tennis court and McGregor posted nice serve bro etc etc okay uh, so Neil Richmond is quoted about Daniel Kinahan saying his cartel has heaped misery on the streets of our capital. Once again, the pretense that arch mobster Daniel Kinahan has no involvement in top-level boxing has been shattered by his own damning actions. But I, I, it doesn't seem like they want to pretend that he doesn't. They seem seems like that he, he wants 
to be associated with boxing, that this is obviously on purpose. This is not done. You know, those photographers are not there by accident putting this stuff up on social media. Um, so it's at a, an MMA gym in Dubai. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, I don't. Boxing doesn't seem to really care who, what advisors or people are associated with boxers and the fights happen the pay-per-views happen the tickets get sold the circus moves on yeah like the, the, there's definitely obviously an, an, a relationship there between uh, Kinhan and Fury because they've, they've met each other publicly and there's been, there's been photographs together quite some time now and what, what's interesting is that I think maybe about 12 months ago the story kind of reached its crescendo with the BBC documentary the, the real sense in the UK that uh, Daniel Kinahan was involved in setting up one of the, the biggest fights in the history of boxing and that felt like maybe a bit of a, a turning point where you have people like Kinahan maybe going back into the shadows a little bit you've got Tyson Fury saying oh there's no connection here between him and, and organising a fight and I think you maybe would have been a bit naive to, to, to take all that at face value especially from Kinahan's side because you can understand why he wants to do this why he wants to be on the front of the papers and to be associated with a, with a sport because it legitimises him and uh, to think that he was just going to f- fall into the shadows, as I say, and and not actually try and legitimise himself, I think would have been a bit of a naive notion. So it's not to any surprise to see that. It's more surprising on Tyson Fury's side, I would suggest. Yeah, in fairness, the first person I saw with this was Kieran Cunningham. At, I was it two days ago on, on Twitter. He's pointing out that um, people aren't talking about this. And then it's in all the papers today. Um, so obviously the, the photographers who were there have started to put their stuff through, but it had appeared on Tyson Fury's Insta stories. Uh, over the last couple of days. Right, a reminder, OTBAM is brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with their new and improved razors. At 23 minutes past nine, we're going to take a quick break and we're back talking Gaelic football. AM. Well, I'm a lover, not a fighter, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to go in because there is, it is yeah. the mantra, all, all in, or one in all in. So you have to go in just to show unity at the very least. But Paddy's right in terms of gaff. Like, Goff has done this. He's the first person now to just go in and start waving cards after mm-hmm. a brawl. So the GH can't go against him because they'll be hanging Goff out to dry then. They have to support him. Yeah. So I think that the, the bands are going to be upheld. But, yeah. like, all these brawls, they're not good. They're not good for, for viewers. They're not good for supporters. But I was just thinking earlier, all the things you can get, a, get away with in a brawl, like, you can basically go in and do anything because no one can see what you're doing. But like, even when you're growing up in club teams and things, there's things you can get away with. Like even when you grab someone by the, the scruff of the neck and you can give an old rabbit punch into the, into the team, like that's not a card offense. Like that is a red card really, but you're not going to get anything for it. There, you can go in and just start pushing someone as hard as you can into the chest. Again, like not really a card, cardable offense. Taking someone to the ground, like... It's a black card, really, but in a in a melee or a brawl, you kind of get away with it. The headlock is something that's probably gone out of control um, because it's it hasn't been given as a red card before. But as soon as you put someone in a headlock, it is dangerous. I know Jesus, it is. that have been nearly choked out on the ground, like they've yeah. been tapping the fella's knee, going, "Just leave me up, leave me up, leave me up." Like so, that is going too far. Um, and then the last one is if you see someone on top of your player, you have the right to pull him off your player as aggressively as you want, basically. You can rip the jersey off his back. And that's happening all the time. So 
I think a couple of red cards flashed will put a bit of a damper on all, all, all those things happening. And I'd, I'd support Gaff if I was GA. But, but, but you know what, what's interesting? Like, they've said, Gaff has set a precedent here. And, and I agree. Like, the GA think you're going to back him. These, these rows happen all the time. Yeah, really interesting. Getting inside the brawl with James O'Donoghue, right to the inside of the brawl right there. It's interesting that it, it, like this is kind of between the way that the conversation has gone over the last couple of days it's, uh, that people haven't just settled for the oh this hasn't been a red card in the past therefore can't be a red card now because that was that was definitely kind of how I felt that was my um, kind of pre-programmed reaction to Sunday it was like David Goff's after taking that was an exact impression to me on Monday morning uh, that David Goff has kind of taken the law into his own hands here a little oh, bit oh he take his exactly yeah that was me so uh, it's uh, it's good that, that, that um, the conversation has changed that a headlock now is going to be seen as as uh, as a red card offence it is grim that there were players that James Dunne who was seen tapping somebody's knee trying to get out of a chokehold on the GA pitch well here's the thing there's a referee who's going to stop you in, in, in the cage when that happens but in a fight you're like oh sorry uh, you want me to stop now? Okay I'll stop. Yeah I won't. Oh, I'm terribly sorry there you've, you've, you've tapped out that's fine. Like, <laughs> so that's not really the law of the jungle does not allow for the tap out does no, it? I, I suspect not. That's, that, or, maybe, or maybe there's just some sort of code. Yes you're of course it. there's a code. Like so like oh I, I can't dive because you've just touched me there's a code that prevents me from doing so. Yeah like it's because I mean I, I'd like to think that in the aftermath of last Sunday that you know the GA chiefs are being like you're onto something there Mr Goff let's, let's actually so. write something into our law book that was James O'Donoghue and Paddy Andrews talking about the red cards fiasco at the athletic grounds on Sunday afternoon it says fiasco but they were I think it was perfectly legitimate uh, you can hear episode 3 of the football pod right now wherever you get your podcast hit subscribe and you'll get a new episode every Tuesday the OTB sports app is the fastest quickest and best way to do it and I'm touching wood here, but I feel like perhaps we've uh, managed to fix most of the issues with our podcasts. I say that and immediately my phone is going to melt. But uh, if we haven't, and if you're still experiencing any issues, set your podcast to download and they should work. Uh, It's a miracle. Yesterday, Ashley O'Reilly was at the launch of the LGFA Leagues for 2022 as Lidl and the LGFA announced a four-year extension to their partnership, which means that Lidl will have invested over £10 million into women's football over the past decade. Ashley caught up with some of the stars of the sport to hear their thoughts on some of the burning topics in the game right now. Probably um, the attendance in matches, um, the double headers um, with the men's matches. Um, just overall, even since Little have come on board, there has been um, so much new initiatives to promote the game. So I think it's like it's still growing, but it's been growing fast over the last five years. Uh, I suppose I'd have to say the live streaming, live streaming of the games. Uh, you know, I suppose uh, especially in the national league, you know, we've been able to be in a position where we've been able to watch a lot more games um, live streamed whether it be you know on, on Facebook or you know on the links on YouTube or whatever it may be and then um, obviously then you know obviously with COVID and stuff it's been quite hard to you know see games so we were very fortunate in the sense that you know we were able to watch them live streamed and uh, yeah so I think that's probably one of the most biggest improvements. Well I think the actual promotion of the sport and how visible it is for all youngers across the country is probably the, the best improvement that I've seen you know f- before um, you know LJFA and Lidl and TG Cahar have really got involved with the sport I think it was much less visible and now for all the youngers across the country they can really like see their role models see their own intercounty players uh, you know on the TV on, in the newspapers like even to be able to stream their games online um, it's huge and like I think the overall promotion of the sport has done has really worked wonders for, for Ladies Football in Ireland 
Um, I think there's a couple of things that um, have really improved over the past few years. Um, certainly just the amount of media coverage that we've received with sport over the few years has been incredible um, and it's really growing and you can really start to see that it's uh, going to grow even more again um, and I think even just the standard of the game the fitness, the physicality of players has really started to, to ramp up as well in the past few years so it's brilliant. There's definitely been a few um, I think if you were to put it down to, to one you wouldn't really be able um, I remember attending events like this four or five, six years ago and there wouldn't be the media coverage that there is now today so that's definitely a massive one participation, the amount of kids that are getting involved in LGFA, I know back home my home club and there's a local club around us as well, new in and you just see the little ones in there every morning, every Saturday morning, you can really see the participation um, has just literally gone through the roof in terms of role models then, I think it's evident. Little have definitely made role models evident through their billboards, their TVs. In Little, um, they've all the Little Plus app now. You can get your jerseys and they've really just highlighted and given younger girls role models to look up to. So I suppose that all came with, you know, can't see, can't be. And yeah, no, I think there's just, there's millions that I could reel off, but they're definitely the few that's on out my head. Personally I'd have to say kind of the crowds like you know going and seeing the changes that have happened in Crow Park and being lucky enough to be there from 2014 to 2021 that you literally are every year you're going out and you're seeing oh my god it was the Cusack now it's the, like it's growing around Crow Park so that's probably the the biggest change which which I would have enjoyed probably the most over the last couple of years. I, I actually can't think of Anthony at the minute, so I'm going to have to say I wouldn't change. I probably wouldn't change Anthony at the minute. <laughs> Just from looking looking on, I suppose the physicality side of things. You know, in, in women's game, you're, you're not. It's 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 quite hard. You know, in terms of being able to push someone off the ball or a fair shoulder, whatever it may be. You know, you you basically can't t- touch women in women's football, and it's really really frustrating sometimes in the games. And then you go on and watch a men's game, and they're practically rugby tackling each other. You know, so I suppose I would like to see a little bit more focus on that in the coming years to be able to like you know women can play football just as good as men and that that physicality needs to be brought into it a little bit more I think the the biggest change is not really a change but it's more of a hope that maybe we could fill Crow Park before 2025 Um, I think it's been class to see the progress over the last few years in terms of the numbers at every All-Ireland final but how amazing would it be for for the sport if we were actually able to to fill Crow Park so that would be a fantastic aim for us to achieve I think probably linking to the physicality of the game as well um, if we you know could actually uh, be a little bit more physical in the game it would be brilliant because yeah I think we all we work so hard we all you know go to the gym and everything so being able to do that in the pitch it would be great that's a controversial question <laughs> um, I wouldn't mind a shoulder a bit of a shoulder yeah um, yeah I definitely like more physicality I think that we're all training for physicality in our S&C and our pre-season programs and I think actually we all want it but um Probably the yellow card as well. I think that kind of ruins the game. Joe and someone gets sent off. It kind of really throws a lapse in the game. Um, but we'll leave that up to the the associations to decide that one. Probably think allowing that more contact and having consistency across the board. Um, it might be a bit of a boring one, but you know the best games we've seen are the ones in Crow Park. Kind of. Um, all-Ireland, All-Ireland semi-stages where it's free-flowing, the game is let play and you know we do all this training to be strong and physical so those games often are the best ones so to probably allow that, that we get a bit more contact in within the, within the rules, um, yeah that would probably be the change.
I would have to say Annette Clark, she captained um, the Galway ladies team back when they won in 2004 and she is one of my own club mates as well so um, we closely followed her when we were still young um, and she's she'll kill me for saying it but she's 40 years old and she just won an All-Ireland with our club with us at the weekend um, after having two gorgeous babies so um, she's a massive inspiration still. Uh, I don't know if I had a favourite footballer per se, I suppose uh, I played a lot of soccer soccer and Gaelic at the same time and my focus was always goalkeeping and I always watched various goalkeepers whether it be soccer goalkeepers or Gaelic goalkeepers so I don't think I kind of had one you know favourite player that I always focused on and watched their style of play it was always you know looking at various different goalkeepers to see what different styles of play they had and then take bits and pieces from each of that. Um, well actually one of my own club mates uh, Maureen O'Donnell she was like a big uh, role model for me growing up as well she was um, one of the only girls playing um, for Donegal at that time that I knew um, so I always kind of like strive to maybe be able to wear a Donegal jersey as well so she's been a massive influence for me and also being able to play with her in my own club was, was huge for me too Seamus Moynihan growing up um, he was just the best centre back and yeah amazing to watch and why, why was he the best I wish I try and uh, see what he did. No, but um, he, um, it was just his passion, his strength, his determination and his ability to read the ball was incredible. Um, anytime you saw him play, you just saw him put it all on the field. Um, and it was just, yeah, he was my idol growing up. Colin Cooper. Yeah, from Kerry. Yeah, um, I loved him. Just everything he did, every time, yeah, every time he was out on the pitch, like he was just absolutely amazing. Like his dummies, and yeah, no, always. I did, even in my head growing up, there was no one really else. It was just always Colum Cooper. And then sure, Louise Maherty came then, and she was known as the the Gooch, and I got to know her then, and I was looking up to her as well. So it's funny because I only kind of started watching football when I was thirteen, and um, I only started playing when I moved house at thirteen. So I was late into it, um, so it has to be kind of a home, a, a, someone from home. So uh, be Lindsay Davy and Sinead Hearn. They were there um, when they won the All Ireland. It was probably probably the first time where I would have seen that. So yeah, the two girls. Um, I think probably even just after playing in the ladies game it's to play to the final whistle because you just don't know what can happen um, in the ladies games recently um, so definitely yeah, play to the final whistle uh, I suppose the, the one thing that, that always sticks out in me it was um, if it's meant for you it won't pass you um, I suppose like you know I'm obviously one of the older girls on, on the mead team and you know I, I could have thrown in the towel a good few years back you know saying you know I'd never be in a, in a position to be in an All-Ireland final let alone win an All-Ireland final you know and I, I'm, I'm very honoured and privileged to be, be standing here saying that you know I, I have two All Ireland medals, you know the intermediate and the senior one. So you know if I had have you know given up all those years ago, you know I, I wouldn't have been fortunate to be standing here talking to you. But sometimes losing probably isn't isn't the worst thing that you can learn so much from losing, and you know, we can always build on your mistakes. So even if your own club team or your own county team like isn't winning every game, that there's still so much learning that you can take, and you know you can really better yourself as a player from losing. Um, you know sometimes whenever you're winning every game, there's not much learning to be taken. So um, by losing you can actually turn yourself into a winner as well by, by building on those mistakes. Parents used to always just say uh, whatever you do, do your best um, and then you can do no more after that so that's what I try and remind myself after games as well sometimes if they don't go your way just uh, try and remember that you did your best. I wouldn't say it's advice but I think just um, filling young kids to just keep going and never give up in terms of if they miss a score to try again and I actually seen a tweet there during the week and it was some coach tweeting saying that 
it's great to see the confidence in it was actually a senior player that was playing at the weekend how he can kick a wide and go back two minutes later and kick again I think it's just filling kids with that drive and confidence that they can just keep going keep staying at it it wouldn't be so much advice it would just be inspiration more than anything it's just to work hard on every given day and that there's loads of things you can't control on a day but one thing you can control is to work hard and your attitude going out there and it's something which I always strive to do if I'm working hard a lot of the time things go the rest of it goes right so that would be it (laughs) Uh, I hope not as Dave Monica probably said different um god I think the championship is wide open I think it could be anyone's game this year hopefully it might be going to Galway um, like you know you never say never like you know obviously our focus you know I suppose a lot of people don't realise that we have been in Division 2 and we haven't been in Division 1 yet so Division 1 football in itself is going to be a massive challenge for us this year so we're taking the league as it comes and then focusing on the championship when it comes around like obviously I want to say yes to that but uh, you can't think too far ahead we have to park 2021 now the National League Division 1 is our main focus now going forward for 2022 at the moment I'm sure they possibly could but I'm hoping that there's a few teams that could possibly put a stop to that Um, I think everyone's going to be really hungry this year Um, I think Meath had a very inspirational win last year and it really showed all the rest of the counties in Ireland that maybe they could possibly do it as well so I think there's going to be a real hunger in every single county team in Ireland this year to go and try and and bring home the Brendan Martin (laughs) Not if we've anything to do about it anyway (laughs) I wouldn't put it past them Um, Yeah, no, I've played against Mead for a few years, I know exactly what they're like, I'm not even surprised like the rest of Ireland was surprised last year. I actually genuinely wasn't. Um, I've seen what they're about. We've played them in many games. We're probably old rivals as well. Intermediate Ireland's challenge games. They always had a good um, a good structure and plan in place. And it was always about time they were going to get over the line. Now, I didn't think they'd get over it as soon as what they did, but I wouldn't put it past them. Um, just look at the way they held themselves in the All-Ireland final last year. Do you know? It's just incredible. Normally, if that was if that was me, you'd be going in, you'd be apprehensive about taking on such a dominant team that's in ladies' football at the minute. But I was at the game myself, and they just literally threw back the shoulders and just went at it. And you just have to admire them. And you know, I wish the best of luck to them this year again. I know I'm probably I might be sitting from the sideline watching on, but our girls too. I hope that they they shove on too because it just goes to show we bet me a few years going all in the final. So um, I hope we can shove on. 100% and tip for the win wherever we go. Sure they can, yeah. Uh, it's it's um, it's there for every team to go back-to-back when they win it. You know, you have the, the winning feeling from the last, the previous year, which drives you on. But then we also have the, the hurt of losing, which drives us on. So we'll see. And that hurt from losing, obviously, last year was a tough year for you. How did you forget about it now, push yourself on and just look to the future? Yeah, you forget about it somewhat, but then, um, you know, there's still a little small part of me that holds on to the hurt from it in order to use that in a positive way uh, to drive you forward, to motivate you on the days where you're not motivated, and then just to learn. You know, you watch the game, you analyse it, you learn from it, you grow from it, and then you pack most of it away, and it depends on the person. For me, I like to hold on to a little bit of that hurt, but other people mightn't. They might just forget about it and, and focus on us. That's Nicola Ward, Carla Rowe, Monica McGurk, Ashley Maloney, Coach Lynch and Emer Gallagher with Ashley O'Reilly at the 2022 LGFA Lidl launch. I want to say congratulations to Aaron Sweetman, who uh, was the winner of today's competition on OTBAM. He correctly identified this. They, at least they download the first episode. 
That's Jamie Heathlip. Uh, so he's in the hat for the draw for the flights, accommodation and match tickets for the weekend, as is everybody who entered and has also won a signed jersey today with thanks to Aer Lingus. OTVAM is live from half seven tomorrow morning. We're continuing our build-up to France-Ireland. There's the hurling power rankings and much more as well. OTVAM brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with their new and improved razors. Uh, here's what's on OTV Sports Radio today at uh, 10.15 live. It's the Club Championship show with Will, Michael Verney, Stephen O'Keefe of Ballygunner and Paul Devlin of Kilku at one o'clock OTV Gold is the remarkable story of Captain Switzer the Koi Gig pod from three our retro panel is Tyrone GA's Golden Days at four and OTB Gold is James McLean from six tonight live from seven it is Wednesday Night Rugby the football show and much much more with Joe OTB AM with Gillette put your best face forward with our new and improved razors